What's up, Nick? Ah,、uh, hanging in there. Not too much. How about you, boss? I'm doing good. So today you're back with us to tell us about Designer Two. That's right. It's a it's a big game with a lot going on, but we'll try to unpack it.、Uh, if it feels a little rushed, or it's only because there's so much to this game, and we want to hit the highlights here, I think. Yeah, exactly. So after we do that, another time we'll record Death of the Outsider, and then we'll have all the synopsises available, and then we can get into the deep lore. Love deep lore. Exciting. Heck yeah. I just realized that I started a new game plus cycle in Death of the Outsiders, so I can't go back and read all the like the little notes you find. So I have to play through it again <laughs> <laughs> to get all the little notes and things that you find.、Um, it's it's like Dark Souls, the item descriptions only. Instead, it's like journal entries because everybody writes obsessively in this universe. So it's like every thought yeah, anybody has, they record it. <laughs> so it's pretty easy to tell what somebody's going to be doing. <laughs> Yeah, they didn't have Twitter back then. <laughs> just like, oh well, this has occurred to me. I'll just write it down. <laughs> and then Delilah, I don't think we would have defeated her if she didn't write down every little aspect of every ritual that she performs. <laughs> I know. It's almost like on some level she wanted to be defeated. You know? Yeah, it's like you know Th- Thanos in the Infinity War. The reason he lost was because of his own. In-, in the comics, the reason he lost was his own insecurities.、Mm-hmm. He doubted himself and. You know, some part of him knew he didn't deserve to be omnipotent, so that's why he lost. <laughs> yeah, it's very deep. Delilah is actually the good guy of the series. You know, you, that's the big reveal at the end. Is that <laughs>、yeah. all all along Delilah is trying to overthrow a corrupt system and make the world as it should be? <laughs> yeah, and、um, she taught Corvo and Emily many lessons, and they became better rulers because of it. Exactly, and Delilah in the background providing advice and keeping everything on the straight and narrow. <laughs> <laughs> There we go. She gets bad rap, man. Yeah. <laughs> so, the honor too. It starts off with memories of training. Yep.、Um, of course, after you know the whole business with the coup by Hiram Burrows and the coup by Admiral Havelock and his crew,、uh, which we talked about to some depth in a prior podcast. Um, Emily has assumed. Emily Caldwin has assumed her rightful place on the throne, and by and large, she's done a fair job. Her heart's not really in governing. She sneaks off at night to jump around the city, and she pretends to pay attention in court. And she has meetings with her top generals without any pants on.、Uh, <laughs> it's actually you find a little note from her boyfriend Wyman.、Um, yep. Well. It, They wanted to leave his gender ambiguous in like the novels where he's mentioned, but they did call him a he in one place, so he's it's、yeah. a he.、Um, <laughs> and、uh, they were, you know, engaged in some sort of shenanigans, and then the generals came in, and she was appropriately dressed from the waist up, but not the waist down. <laughs> <laughs> so she just kind of sat behind her desk and looked all dignified, like she was paying attention, and they never noticed that the whole time she didn't have any pants on because she didn't leave her desk. <laughs> So、uh, you know, Emily the pantsless, I guess. <laughs> well, so that that was one little funny anecdote. You know, she's done an okay job. The rat plague's been cured.、Um, yeah, commerce is resurging. Everybody's generally happy, but her heart's just kind of done in it. I guess she sort of felt like the role of empress was kind of foisted on her, and、yeah. she never really had a choice whether to accept it. So she's muddling along the best she knows how. Right. And on the other side of things, Corvo, her father, is now both royal protector and spymaster.、Uh, to kind of refer briefly to the first game, the spymaster is the one who led the first coup and had Empress Jessamine, Emily's mother, assassinated. 
Um, and he was able to do that largely because the spy master at the time worked in secret. Even the emperor or the empress didn't know what they were doing half the time. Uh, and so Emily decided to eliminate that position, basically, and give all those responsibilities to the royal protector, who was also charged to be her bodyguard. So whoever is the head of the intelligence services, i.e. the spy master, is also somebody who's going to have the monarch's best interest at heart. Yeah. And at this time, it's also her father. So Yep, it happens to be her father as well. <laughs> so that, that was a smart move on her part, I think, to give oh, those yeah. responsibilities. Because Corvo's not going to go behind her back and try to overthrow her. Now, you have that option at the end of the game, but we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that was it. so by day, she's Empress, and by night, she's training with Corvo, because Corvo was understandably, after what happened in the first game, is concerned that she will be able to protect herself and fight and sneak around and do all those cool things that he was able to do in the first game. And so he trains her over many nights and many long hours and many years, and though Corvo loves her very much, it's not really you know, happy training. She she spills her fair share of blood <laughs> during the training sessions. If you read the novel, uh, she spilled a lot of blood and suffered a lot of injuries during the training, but as a consequence, her capabilities at stealth and combat are somewhere close to Corvo's at this point. She's not, she's not quite as good as he is, because when she sneaks out at night, she thinks she's sneaking past him and he doesn't know it, but he's actually out there with her, sneaking around, unbeknownst to her, watching over her to protect her while she's sneaking Aww. around at night. Because uh, that, that's how she kind of decompresses. You know, at, late at night, she'll sneak out of the palace and go jumping to rooftops through the city. Yeah, and he follows her, so it's a family activity. Exactly, he follows her. Now, she doesn't, <laughs> she doesn't know it, but he follows her to watch over her, and the whole time she thinks that uh, he doesn't know about it. She thinks she's good enough to sneak past Corvo, but not quite. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, yeah, so he's watching over her the whole time and all that good stuff, so that, that's kind of sweet. Yeah. Eventually she finds out that he knows about it, but that's right before Delilah's coup, which we'll get to in a second. Um, mm-hmm. So the first mission basically depicts one of the many training sessions that Corvo and Emily had together. And this is basically the tutorial where you learn the basic mechanics of the game. Yeah. It's like in the in the first phase you have to run and you have to jump and you have to crouch and slide and swim and do all these basic things to navigate some obstacles that Corvo sets up. And then the second part always terrifies me uh, because it's stealth training and you have to sneak up on Corvo and choke him. But you're playing as <laughs> you're playing as Emily. Uh, you have to sne- yeah. you have to sneak up on Corvo and choke him, and then you have to pickpocket Corvo. And I'm like, holy crap, it's Corvo! I can't sneak up on Corvo. Yeah. <laughs> Because then you think, wait, this is the tutorial. How hard can it be? <laughs> but it's like, it's Corvo, man. You know? I know. It's like, you can't sneak up on Corvo. He'll sneak up on you. Uh, <laughs> that's how it works. He's like the Chuck Norris of Dishonored. Exactly. When, 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 Corvo, <laughs> when Corvo does a push-up, he pushes the earth down. He <laughs> doesn't push himself up. You know, Corvo's tears could cure cancer. Too bad he never cries. Oh. <laughs> uh. <laughs> If you spell Corvo in Scrabble, you win forever. <laughs> you know, all these Chuck Norris jokes. You know? I like how you just have all these Chuck Norris jokes in your mind on hand just for a moment like this. Oh, I know. It's like oh, my, my friend. Yeah, my friends and I used to make these Chuck Norris jokes all the time back in high school, and I still remember like a few of them. <laughs> oh dear, it's like uh, I say. It's like Corvo and Superman. Had a had a wrestling match and the loser had to wear his underwear on the outside forever. Guess who won? <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh man! Okay, I'll stop. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, so Corvo's Chuck Norris. Uh, 
So after you've managed to sneak up on Corvo and do all that stuff, then you have the crossbow training. And basically, Corvo sets up some obstacles, and he gives you his crossbow, and you have to shoot the targets. There's, like, bottles and buckets. There's a mannequin, all kind of good stuff. And then the last one's maybe the most terrifying. You have to engage Corvo in sword combat. Uh, and it, for me, this is always the hardest part, because in this game, I was never particularly good at parrying and, you know, putting enemies off balance, but that's one thing you have to do to get past the, tu- you know, the tutorial. So that, that always takes me a few tries, uh, but eventually you do it. One cool thing about the training was that um, it showed you that in this game, you can actually engage in a fight, but then knock someone out and finish the fight in, um, like in a non-violent way. That's right. And if you're on low chaos, that's essential. Yeah. Like the first game, if you engaged in combat, there was no way to knock someone out unless you used like a sleep dart. Yeah. And or you run away and hope. Like they'd lose interest in you and then you could sneak yeah. up on them again. <laughs> um, but yet there was no way to like knock someone out in direct combat, uh, which was very frustrating if you're trying to get a, a low chaos playthrough. Um, and basically what the chaos mechanic is, like basically the more people you kill, the darker and more morbid the story gets and the, the, the worse conditions get in the area. It's more complicated than that because there are other factors. Like, if people find even unconscious bodies, it raises your chaos level a little bit. Uh, yeah. And if you choose to eliminate the targets lethally, that raises the chaos. Uh, but basically, you can do whatever you want. As long as you don't kill a bunch of regular enemies and don't kill the targets, you're fine. Uh, if you want to do a low chaos playthrough, because killing people is what really raises it. Um, but yeah, anyway, so if you're trying to do a low chaos playthrough uh, in the first game, you ha- you almost have to sneak up on him. Otherwise, there's no way to knock him out. And so now the, the first real mission is a long day in Dunwall, and boy, is it ever a long day. <laughs> For some more background, uh, Emily's, po- Emily's, Emily's popularity has started to wane within the Empire, and that is for two reasons. Those who listened to our first Dishonored podcast will recall whale oil is basically the economic foundation in the empire. It's the main source of electricity. Um, you know, so it, it's one of the more trafficked items. So it's very, very popular, yeah. very necessary item. Uh, but there, there's been so much whale hunting that whales are getting harder and harder to find. And the cost of hunting and finding the whales is starting to outweigh the benefit of harvesting the whale oil and the other parts. Um, and so in order to sort of prevent overhunting of whales, Emily issued a decree that uh, severely rations the availability of whale oil. Mm-hmm. Which in turn caused the price of whale oil to skyrocket. Right. And those who had the greatest access to whale oil were the nobility and the aristocracy, and they really didn't like this. <laughs> they didn't like it at all. Yeah. <laughs> and so many of them, who may have once been allied to her, have now become very outspoken critics. And so that has seriously damaged her popularity. Mm-hmm. And then another thing is that uh, someone is going around and killing Emily's most outspoken political critics. And they've, mm-hmm. they've come to call this person the crown killer. Because he kills crowns. Yeah. I keep wanting to say clown killer. <laughs> <laughs> wonk, wonk. Hey, squeeze your nose and then kill you. Uh, <laughs> I'm just that kidding. sounds like a reverse horror movie, you know? Because usually it's the clowns that kill people. Yeah, this guy is targeting clowns. Actually... I tell you the truth. Um, my, my company sells, uh, you know, mock law exams, and those are basically hypothetical fact patterns, right? That you have to analyze the issues and discuss the legal implications of what happens in the fact pattern. One of them is in criminal law, and it and it involves this guy who hates clowns, and he actually attempts to murder a clown. <laughs> 
<laughs> so he is the clown killer. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> it was wild. When I was editing it, I was like, "Holy crap, this is awesome!" <laughs> now we've come full circle, and we're talking about the clown killer. Uh, so I'm going to be hard pressed not to say clown killer for the rest of the podcast. Uh, <laughs> but yet, yeah, this crown killer is running around killing Emily's most outspoken critics. Many think it's Corvo. I guess mm-hmm. somewhat understandably. Uh, yeah. And some think it's Emily herself, but, you know, the general consensus seems to be that uh, the crown itself is is responsible for the crown killer. Yeah. And, of course, this has seriously damaged Emily's credibility. So these two things together put her in a kind of a politically vulnerable position. And just as it happens to be coming upon the yearly, I guess you could say the yearly commemoration of Jessamine's assassination. Mm Mm-hmm. Every year, it's a big ceremony. People come from all around to Dunwall, which is the capital of the empire, you know, to remember Jessamine and pay homage to her and everything. Well, Emily and Corvo are entering sort of the imperial court, and they're being led by a girl named uh, Alexi Mayhew, who is a captain in the City Watch, which is kind of the military and police force in the capital city of Dunwall. Um Brief and interesting story about her. She she and Emily are childhood friends. She saved Emily's life once when a bunch of regenters tried to kill her. And regenters are those who wanted to sort of reinstitute sort of the despotic reign of Hiram Burroughs, the erstwhile Lord Regent. Mm-hmm. Um, they they still wanted to implement his ideals for kind of a stern and austere style of governing. And so they they tried to kill Emily, and basically Alexi Mayhew saved Emily at great risk to herself. And so because of that, once she joined the City Watch at age 18, she was quickly promoted to captain. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> she, she had Emily's favor for understandable reasons. She also became, if you read the comics, she became good friends with Corvo as well. Mm-hmm. So Alexi Mayhew is leading Corvo and Emily into the Imperial Court, and Emily and Corvo are talking about the crown killer. And this is where Corvo says that he knows about Emily's nighttime escapades in the city. It's like, did you think yeah. I did? Do you think <laughs> I didn't know? <laughs> <laughs> Because there were a lot of rumors that she was sneaking out at night, but Corvo knew for certain, obviously, because he was accompanying her, unbeknownst to her. Um, so Emily yeah. walks up and takes her throne, and she's getting ready to... Like, she's giving a speech. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, in rude interruption, this guy named Mortimer, Mortimer Ramsey, who's also, I think, a captain or a high-ranking officer in the City Watch, announces the arrival of Duke Luca Abel of Circonos. Um... Circonos is the southernmost island in the empire. There are four islands to the empire. Circonos is the one off to the south. And the capital of Circonos is a city called Karnaka, named, you know, the jewel of – it's like the jewel of the south at the edge of the – the jewel of the south at the edge of the empire is what they call it. It's, it's, it's a warm climate. It's kind of like San Francisco. It's a beautiful city. It's got a beautiful bay area. And people, you know, historically it's benefited from a lot of tourism and immigration. But since Duke Luca Abel took over, things have kind of gone south, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But but the Duke is, he's, it's like if the Empire is a nation and and Circonos is a state, Duke Luca Abel is kind of the governor of the state, pretty much. He's the head of that part of the Empire. And so he marches in, and he's got soldiers with him, or rather members of his Grand Guard with him. And he's got these big robots with fearsome... These big humanoid-looking robots with blades on their arms and these elongated heads that look like pterodactyls, and they're kind of fearsome-looking. Mm-hmm. And there's also this—they're also carrying in this covered chair, and some, you know, pompous-looking woman is sitting in the chair, uh, looking, yeah. <laughs> looking very satisfied with herself. And when Duke Luca Bell comes in, he—he claims to be bearing a gift 
And the gift is uh, Delilah Copperspoon, now called Delilah Caldwin the First. First of her name. Mm-hmm. And she has basically come to declare herself empress. Yeah. She's like, I'm the long lost illegitimate child of, she doesn't say illegitimate, but I'm the lost sister of <laughs> Jessamine, the lost child of former Emperor Yu Horn, and I've come to claim my rightful place on the throne. And just like that, <laughs> there's been a coup. <laughs> this particular scene has always sort of inspired some awe in me because Delilah basically just walk, comes up in there, proclaims herself empress, and now she's the empress. <laughs> Like, hey, I'm the Empress now. Okay. Yeah, in my head, I sort of imagine Emily, you know, she's like fed up with the kingdom. And then when Delilah says it, she's like, okay, great. You take over. You deal with this crap. I'm out. I'm going on vacation. Bye, everyone. (laughs) I've got my replacement. I'm retiring. (laughs) Yeah, good. (laughs) But pretty much, I mean, there are some who are, those who are based, there's a fight now between those who are loyal to Emily and those who participated in the coup. Yeah, because Mortimer Ramsay, he was in on it because if it weren't for him, the Duke and Delilah couldn't have actually gotten into the the, the throne room. Yeah. Um, and he is actually a relative of Jack Ramsay, who you may remember is was um, Bundy Rothwild's competitor in the DLC for Dishonored One, um, the one who wanted us to sabotage the warehouse and blow it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's a relationship there, but Mortimer, Mortimer Ramsley, his family was, was once a family of nobility, but they kind of fell from grace. But he found a position in the city watch, and he was resentful over his family's sort of fall from status. And so that's why he agreed to take part in the coup. But I guess we'll get to that. Um, and so Delilah comes in, and the clockwork soldiers start slaughtering everybody who's loyal to Emily. The Duke's soldiers start killing everyone who's loyal to Emily. And Emily herself, well, actually, a Corvo actually... Hold on, let me kind of back up. Delilah leaves her little chair thing, her little elevated chair yeah. thing. And she sits on the throne, proclaims herself empress, starts to attack Emily, and Corvo jumps into action to protect Emily. He's using his outsider powers, you know. Yeah. And he actually kills three of the guys who are just about to attack Emily. Yeah, he hardcore. Oh, he's awesome. And then he, <laughs> he, he puts his knife right through Delilah's heart. Mm-hmm. So you're like, oh, Corvo saved the day, but then Delilah's unfazed. It doesn't have any effect on her. She says something to the tune of, it'll take more than a knife through the heart to kill me, buddy. <laughs> and so she, she grabs hold of his left hand and takes away his outsider mark. Yeah. Which is the source of his supernatural powers, as we explained in previous podcasts. So now Corvo lacks his supernatural powers, but he's still, you know, he's still a force to be reckoned with, even without his powers. Oh, yeah. For sure. And so there comes a point where during, all the, during the whole big kerfuffle, Emily and Corvo are standing back to back, ready to fight. And at this point, you're prompted to choose whether to play the rest of the game as Emily or as Corvo. Mm-hmm. Um, if you read the comic book called The Pyrrhus and the Prince, the canon is that you choose Emily, and she plays through the rest of the game. But, you know, you can choose to play as Emily or as Corvo. The first time I played the game, I was still in love with Corvo as a character. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so I chose him. But when I played through to prepare for this podcast, I chose Emily. So yeah. you can choose either one. Um, we'll focus on Emily because that's the canon, yeah. I guess. Uh, but where it's where it's interesting, we'll also mention Corvo's playthrough. They're largely the same, but a lot of the dialogue is different depending on whether you're Corvo or Emily, and that's really the main difference. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there's a big choice you have to make at the end, which varies a little bit depending on which character you play through. But we'll assume you choose Emily. Yeah. At which point Delilah will turn Corvo to stone, or if you choose Corvo, she'll turn Emily to stone. 
Yeah, it's so sad. <laughs> Very sad. Yeah, no. Whoever you don't choose gets turned to stone. And you're like, whoa, Delilah couldn't do all this stuff in the DLC, if you remember playing yeah. through the DLC. She could be killed there, and she couldn't turn people to stone there. So she's <laughs> not only has she come back from the dead, she's a lot more powerful now than she was. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't th- I'm not sure whether the canon is that Dowd kills her or not. You can either kill her or trap her in the void. But either way, she's trapped in the void. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not sure it matters. I want to say the canon is that you actually sabotage the ritual and trap her in her painting in the DLC. Um, I think so. And, but that would, but because that takes place in the void, and because the painting is of the void, you've basically trapped her in the void. And if you kill her, then her spirit will be trapped in the void. So either way, the result is the same, so I'm not sure it matters. Mm-hmm. Um, but these games tend to go with the non-lethal resolution as the canon, so I'll yeah. just assume that that's the case. Um, it's a little ambiguous in a couple of places in Dishonor 2, but we'll, we'll also get to that. So at this point, um, once, once your companion is turned to stone, you're subdued, and all of a sudden you're accused of all these crimes revolving around the crown killer and you know yeah. the usual sedition and treason and whatever else you might accuse <laughs> your political opponents of if you're a despot. Yes. And so Mortimer Ramsey drags you off, and as he's dragging you away, um, he comes across... Hold on, let me scroll down to my notes just to make sure I get this right. <laughs> yeah, He's dragging you off to Emily's private room. Whether you're Corvo or Emily, he's going to drag you off to Emily's private room. On the way, as Ramsey is dragging you away, he encounters Alexi Mayhew. And at this point, she, doesn't, she had to leave the throne room, so she doesn't realize what's happened. She knows something's wrong, but she's still trying to get her head around what's happening. Um, and during the kerfuffle, Ramsey came into possession of Corvo's signature folding blade. And so while Ramsey is talking to Alexi Mayhew, he stabs her with it. And so yeah. she's lying there bleeding out, which is very sad. Yeah, it's very sad. And then he, after that, he drags you off to Emily's room and locks you in there. And he steals your Imperial Signet Ring, which is the key to grant the much rumored about, or to grant access to the uh, Imperial Safe Room, in which there's a bunch of gold and food and everything an escaping Empress might need in the event of a coup. Yeah. <laughs> so Ramsey knew about it, and so he took the Imperial Signet Ring, which is the only way to access the room. And so once you're locked in the room and he leaves you alone, your first objective is to get out of the room, and then a technically optional but very advisable objective is to steal the Signet Ring and get access to the room and pick up a bunch of golden items. I mean, why, why wouldn't you? And so once you, you get out of the room, I think you climb out a window, and then you sort of make your way over to the, to the right and then climb back in another window, and you're out of the room. So it's not terribly yeah. difficult. No, it um, really isn't. You don't you don't have any powers yet, but there's really nothing in this level that can't be navigated with your standard, mm-hmm. you know, abilities. Yeah. So you climb out the window, you sort of move carefully along the ledge, don't fall off and kill yourself, which mm-hmm. is hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> and then you climb back in, and at some point you'll find uh, Alexi Mayhew, they're bleeding out, but she's still alive. And when you talk to her, she'll give you Corvo's blade, and then she'll tell you to make your way down to the waterfront and get on a boat with this gal named uh, Megan Foster, who's the captain of a of a. I guess you. Call, it looks like a river boat to me. I'm, I'm not sure you could call it a fishing boat, but the captain of this boat called the Dreadful Whale, and the name is kind of a kind of a pun because it's not W H A L E, it's W A L E, like Dreadful Whale, like you're whaling. <laughs> like a ghost. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> you know, the dreadful whale. So Megan is the captain of the dreadful whale. She's willing to assist you. So Alexi Mayhew says, make your way down to the dreadful whale and hook up with this chick, uh, Megan Foster. Mm-hmm. 
Well, that's not her exact words, but... uh... (laughs) (laughs) Something among those lines. Something along... And then shortly after that, she dies. Yeah. So at least now you have a weapon. So for that high chaos playthrough, you can can slit people's throats and stab them now. And then, um, like I said, your next task, you 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 have to deal with Ramsey in some way. You can kill him or you can incapacitate him. Yeah. Uh, well, well, yeah. You can, once you deal with him, you can take the signet ring. Um, the past two times I played through the game, I just killed him. But another way to deal with him is you can choke him out, right? And then you can open up the safe room with your imperial signet ring, and then you can, once you've looted the place as much as you can carry, you can stick him in there, and then lock him inside the room. Yeah. <laughs> and there's enough food in there to last for one month, <laughs> but your adventure takes place over. Two months. <laughs> Plot twist. So two months later, when you come back to Dunwall for the final mission, you'll find his you know, petrified corpse hanging around <laughs> somewhere in Dunwall Tower because he uh, didn't he didn't he only had enough food to get him through half of your adventure. <laughs> so then he starved to death. <laughs> so either way he's dead. <laughs> Whether you kill him outright or lock him in you know, it's just I think it's more humane to kill him because if you lock him in the well, safe wait. room... wait. What if you don't lock him in a room? What if you just leave him in the castle? You can uh, you can knock him out and just leave him laying. I think you can knock him out and just leave him laying, take the ring, and get inside the safe room. As long yeah. as you meet up with Megan, it'll complete the mission. But it's really fun to lock him in the room. <laughs> I think the ultimate objective is to meet up with Megan Foster. As long as yeah. you do that, I think you can get through the mission. But uh, Yeah. My only reservation about this, I'm not sure that it'll give you credit for eliminating him unless you lock oh, him in the safe room. That's true. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So he won't give you yeah. credit for ticking off that objective. <laughs> uh, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure how Megan will react if you haven't technically ticked him off. I'm not sure that she'll whether she'll still invite you on board and take you away or not. Because uh-huh. I didn't test that when I was playing through. Yeah, I should me have. neither. I didn't think of that. <laughs> and I didn't see anything on the wiki that talks about it either. So I may have to test that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We'll make Richie do it. Because <laughs> he's never played Dishonored, so we'll just make him do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and now that it, yeah, I may just replay the first, or I may just replay a long day in Dunwall just to test that and see what happens. I'm mm-hmm. curious now that we're talking about it, like what happens. Well, if- no, you'll have to replay the entire game because then you have to get to the end and see if he's still at the place where you left him. That's right. See if you still see his corpse, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would think that if you don't lock him in the room, there, he has no reason to hang around the tower, but you know, it, it was. You come to find out later that it's pretty easy to incur Delilah's disfavor. Yeah. So a lot of people got killed just because they looked at her sideways or something. <laughs> yeah. You know, so in any case, yeah, Delilah's firmly established herself as the new empress and you're a fugitive now. And so basically you, you make your way out of the palace and you get rid- you deal with Ramsey however you deal with him. You mm-hmm. ideally get inside the safe room and you can't carry all the gold because some of it is, is in these like big, huge bars that... Yeah. That nobody could carry, which doesn't seem practical if the purpose of the room is give you, is to give you supplies to escape with. Right? Yeah, I was thinking that too, but uh, yeah. like, the purpose is so that Emily will have enough food and supplies if she's on the run for a while and enough money. But mm-hmm. most of the money is tied up in these like great big huge gold bars that are as as big as a person. Maybe they forgot to cut them up. <laughs> Maybe they did. <laughs> So they, and, and gold is heavy, right? So it just seems very yeah. impractical. Uh, but you grab what you can when you when you get into the safe room. You grab what you can carry, and then you mm-hmm. leave. And then you, if you can stick Ramsey in there if you want to, and you know, smile in satisfaction as he starves to death, <laughs> but you still get a low chaos ready. <laughs> yeah. 
bit of it, it. The whole chaos system is a bit hypocritical. Because, oh, very. Because you know, a lot of these non-lethal solutions are either worse than death or lead to the person dying anyway. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> but as long as you do the non-lethal solution, you'll still get the low chaos rate. <laughs> so it's a bit hypocritical. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so basically, you there's a, there's a lot here to explore, and so we, we're kind of. Maybe rushing through the loop. There's a whole lot here to explore. There are paintings to steal. There are like, once you get out of the, the tower and get down onto the surface streets and make your way to the boat, there's a lot of little discreet places to explore and find items and things. But, you know, nothing that's really key to the lore. So we'll say you get out of the tower, you explore around the area, you finally make your way over to the boat. I think you pretty much have to swim over at, at one point. And then while you're swimming, of course, our favorite animals, the hagfish, will... <laughs> Oh yeah, will start biting you. Basically, hagfish are these piranha-like fish, and they're they're pretty big. And in the water, you're pretty much helpless against them. If you're on the surface mm-hmm. and looking down into the water, you might be able to shoot them or something. But you basically can't do anything against them if you're swimming. You're kind of helpless. No, yeah, which kind of sucks. And they do a lot of damage. So once they start attacking you, you have to get out, <laughs> yeah. get, get out of the water quickly. And so once you you swim over to the boat, you get away from the hagfish. You climb onto the boat. You meet up with Megan. And she offers you shelter inside her boat. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like uh, because the Duke, because Duke Luca Abel of Sarkonos is apparently a key figure in the coup, they decide to go to Karnaka, which is mm-hmm. where Corvo incidentally grew yeah. up. What a coincidence! Yeah, yeah. So if you're playing, <laughs> if you're playing as Corvo, you're going back home, and if you're mm-hmm. playing as Emily, you're going to your father's childhood home. Yeah. So that's where Megan takes you, and you've completed the mission. Uh, oh, shoot. One thing I did kind of forget to mention. Is it about Megan? Uh, well, uh, well, that's a big reveal. I'm not sure we should say that now. Or should it we? didn't seem like a very big reveal, because the first time you see her, you're like, you're not Megan. Nope. <laughs> Why are you lying? <laughs> <laughs> nope. I mean, I mean, she basically looks like an older version of a beloved character we encountered in the DLC. Yeah. <laughs> It's Billy Lurk. I mean, Megan's yeah, Billy Lurk. <laughs> literally. <laughs> I don't see how Corvo... Maybe Corvo never met her. Right, because every time you encounter Billy Lurk in the first game, it's as Dowd. Oh, yeah, that's what it I is. I don't think Corvo or Emily ever meet her in the first game, you know, so... Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Because otherwise it's like, Corvo, <laughs> come on, man. It's literally yeah. Billy. <laughs> yeah, it's Billy. So I don't think they ever met her, so that makes okay. sense. Um so yeah, it's Billy Lurk. Megan Foster is Billy Lurk. But when you see her, though, she's missing her right eye and her right arm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's kind of a story behind that. And you can actually restore her limbs to her later on in the game, depending on what you do. And I think it's the sixth mission. But we'll get to that. But when you see her now, she is missing an eye. She's missing her, at least half, the lower half of her right arm. There's like this little stump. Yeah. And that's all that's left of it. And so she takes you on board her, her, uh, her boat. And she gives you a little cabin. And she's like, you know, sorry we can't, uh, somewhat sarcastically, sorry we can't provide the accommodations you're used to, your Imperial Majesty. But <laughs> yeah. we're on a rickety old boat that I, it's everything I can do just to maintain. So, And you also find out, too, that our old friend Anton Sokolov has been living with her for a while on this boat. Yeah. And I'm like, wait a minute. Anton Sokolov invented all these things and cured the rat plague and painted all these wonderful sought-after paintings. Why is he so poor that he has to live with Billy Lurk on a boat? <laughs> yeah it's like i don't fully understand that it's like um he's been living with megan foster on this boat for all this time and they've they've, they've clearly been living on a shoestring budget but anton sokolov ought to have some money saved up 
Maybe he wasn't very good with saving or investments. <laughs> or he, he did spend a lot of money on expensive alcohol, like expensive wine and expensive brandy. So maybe that's it. Yeah. Or you know maybe? what? What? I, I, I've got it. He invested with Bernie Madoff. I was about to say he put all his money into Enron. <laughs> that too. Or he, he, he had half his money between Bernie Madoff and half his money with, with Enron. And he just did, he got some really bad financial advice. That's just one thing that struck me. I'm like, wait a minute. Why is the great Anton Sokolov living like a pauper with Billy Lurk on this boat? You know, I, I really can't think of a good reason why. He, he went down to Karnaka and he should have been able to transfer his funds because that's part of the empire. <laughs> so I, I don't know what happened to all of his money. <laughs> Maybe he fell for one of those scams. Yeah, he, he fell for one of those. Uh, yeah, I'm your aunt from far away. I will send you all this money if you give me your bank account number. That's right. Scams, yeah. Like, I'm, a, I'm a long lost Nigerian prince. I have vast wealth. <laughs> Just send me your bank account and I'll transfer some to you in exchange for your social security number or some such nonsense. <laughs> something like that, yeah. He must, he must have gotten some bad financial advice or something at some point along the way. Um, so yeah, but he's missing now and you'll come yeah. to deal with that. He, he has a knack for getting kidnapped. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's been kidnapped, but we'll touch on that a little bit later. But once you get on Megan's boat and you finally sit down to go to sleep and write in your little travel journal and go to sleep, somebody pays you a visit. And it's our old friend, the outsider. Yeah. Ooh, our, our black-eyed friend. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, of course, the outsider is essentially the gatekeeper to the void. He decides, he, he lives in the void, and he decides who is or is not touched by the void's magic. As Dow noted, he appears to only a handful of people in any generation. Yeah. Uh, and basically, his criterion for appearing to you, he doesn't care whether you're good or whether you're evil or anything like that. He you know, those trifling details don't bother him. What no. matters to him is that you're in- whether he finds you interesting. Yeah. Because I can remember he, Anton Sokolov was desperate for a while to contact the outsider, and the outsider appears to Corvo and says, if he wants to meet with me, he could start by being a little more interesting. <laughs> yeah, that was, a, that was a burn. <laughs> that was a sick burn, man. <laughs> uh, but he doesn't care whether you're rich or poor or good or bad. He, it was whether he finds you interesting. Mm-hmm. And usually it's because you are or will be at the intersection of events that will shape the world or at least the empire forever mm-hmm. going forward. And he wants to see what you'll do. So he'll appear to, he, almost like, you know, one of those um, uh, in the old stories about these demons who would appear to humans and give them a forbidden boon just to see what they do with it. You know, <laughs> I think that was part of the inspiration for the outsider. And so the outsider will appear to people and give them powers just to see what they do with them. And so he, he appeared to Corvo in the events of the first game. He's appeared to Delilah, and he gave her the mark a long time ago, uh, shortly after she was cast out of the palace, which we'll get to. Mm-hmm. He appeared to um, Dowd, obviously, and a few other handful of other people. Granny Rags also had his mark. But we'll, yeah. Gr- Granny Rags actually has an honorable mention in this game, a couple of honorable mentions, so we'll get to that. Uh, she's, <laughs> she, she's a boss. She's a witch you can fight in the first game. She's actually kind of tough. They initially present her as this doddering old lady, but she's actually pretty tough once you start to fight her. Um, well, you don't even have to fight her. You can just help her make soup. Right. You can just help her make soup out of this guy named Slackjaw. <laughs> <laughs> you can yeah. either let her turn, you can either help her turn Jack Slackjaw into tonight's dinner, or you can fight her and kill her. I fought her and kill her because I wanted to record the boss fight for my channel. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so anyway, let's not get oh, ahead yeah, of yeah, your channel. You you finally have a custom URL. That's right. We got over 100 subs, so we've got a custom URL. Woo! Tell us what it is. Oh, let me make sure I've got this right. It's youtube.com slash lowercase c 
another slash and then capital Oh my god. Yeah. How many slashes did you put in there? Uh, YouTube generated it for me and wouldn't let me change it. <laughs> like, oh my god. <laughs> we tried so hard. Why YouTube? <laughs> I know. So, I, I, so it's like youtube.com slash little c slash cinder thief and everything is lowercase except the c and the t. You know? <laughs> Which are capitalized. So it's like, okay. Oh All my right. god. Well played, YouTube. <laughs> Well played, YouTube. YouTube. Oh my god. Well played. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear. Back in my day, I'm pretty sure I could have picked my own name. I I tried to change it, and I just it was it was set in stone. I guess YouTube's policies have gotten more stringent. Custom URL seems to mean just unless I'm totally incompetent at YouTube, which could well be the case. (laughs) You know. But yeah, so that so that was cool. They sent me a nice little email. Hey, congrats on a hundred subs. You did great. Then I got Aww. my little custom URL. So Yeah. But when I just go into YouTube and type Cinder Thief with a Y in the search bar, your channel is the one that pops up first. Really? That's cool. Yeah. But I don't know if maybe because I visit it so often, YouTube is like, here you go. This is what you want. <laughs> Thank you for visiting. <laughs> yeah. But maybe well, it's just first. That's cool. Well, that's awesome. And it, it didn't used to be. It used to be like everything in the world would come up before. <laughs> Before my channel, so we must be we must be gaining some ground here. So that's awesome. You're going places, bro. Forget that silly law career. Yeah, YouTube is where it's at. Look out, PewDiePie! Here we come. <laughs> <laughs> and PewDiePie is only the biggest thing on YouTube, not just in yeah. gaming, but ever. You know? yeah. <laughs> like I think he's getting close to seventy million subscribers now. It's crazy. Let's see, PewDiePie. Yep, seventy-seven million subs. Whoa, he's pushing eighty million now. Oh wow! Good for you. Wow, that that's, yeah. that is great for him. So he's making uh, once you get up mm-hmm. to like fifty or sixty or seventy thousand, you start. Or well, actually, once you get up to one million, you start earning a living from it, like a solid living. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, so imagine once you get up to seventy some odd million, you're just like you're you're set. <laughs> you're king, you know? <laughs> king of YouTube. It's so funny. I um I kind of didn't know about him before I got into this whole YouTube lore thing. And when I first like saw somebody talk about him, I was like, what's a pew die pie? The, pew, the pie is dying? Well, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, he's only the biggest creator on YouTube. Like, yeah. Well, I was a casual. I used to only watch YouTube for like uh, old seasons of America's Next Top Model and Judge Judy. I, that's a, that's a per, especially Judge Judy. That's a perfectly legitimate yeah. use of YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, top model also legitimate. Yeah, yeah. Learn a lot from that. Kind of reminds me. My wife likes to watch this show called uh, Ninety Day Fiance, where these where these idiots uh, <laughs> get, get engaged. These people who are trying to get you know lawfully admitted to the United States, and in almost every case, it's clear that the person just wants a visa and doesn't really Aww. care about. It doesn't really is not really in love with the American, you know. <laughs> and so we, we've come to refer to the show in shorthand as, "Hey, you going to watch the idiots?" <laughs> <laughs> you're going to watch the idiots because clearly the the relationship is just for a green card, you know. <laughs> but it, it's fun to watch the people squirm about and languish in disillusionment when it yeah. all comes sort of. of Reality. I mean, um, it, it's 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 fun because you know part of it's contrived and put on, you know, for the show. But it's it's fun to watch anyway. Reality TV is pretty entertaining. Yeah, even though it's it's in a lot of ways it's just as scripted as scripted stuff. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. It's it's still fun. the only difference between like a real scripted show and the reality show is that the writers aren't unionized. I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh 
<laughs> and there is some room for spontaneous reactions from the participants, <laughs> yeah. you know. So they're not rehearsed. It's not rehearsed, but it is kind of set up, you know. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. Oh, shoot. We're in true, in true form. We've gotten off topic. That's awesome. I'm so glad. <laughs> You're like, this is the true form of the snack covenant. <laughs> exactly. No, that's good. Because if we, if we just keep to the content the whole time, people, you know. Yeah, they will not appreciate this. I will lose my 77 million subscribers. Yep, you'll, you'll go down to 75. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's awesome. Ah, oh, PewDiePie, thank you for giving us a nice diversion. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Am, am I subscribed to PewDiePie? I don't think I am. It's like, almost a third of the U.S. population is, but I guess I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> Holy cow. Ah, oh, PewDiePie, we love you. Anyway. Yeah. I actually, I actually watched him play through Bloodborne. Oh, yeah? And, uh, and he, he found this, like, you know how people will leave you these notes, right? You don't give up and all this stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he, he came across, he was in the fishing hamlet. And he came across this note from someone that said, don't give up. And his reaction was, F you, don't tell me what to do. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, dude, they're trying to encourage you. <laughs> yeah, it's a helpful comment for once on the internet. You You'll never see this again. <laughs> you know, the, the, blood, the, the Souls community is really, they'll actually try to help you. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes they'll try to lie to you, but most of the time they're helpful. Yeah. Uh, but he's like, F you, don't tell me what to do. <laughs> he just kept going. <laughs> like, oh, I, I sort of disdain and like this guy at the same time. <laughs> I don't think I've ever really watched a video of his. I think I've seen him in memes and stuff mostly. Yeah. I, I watched his Bloodborne video and it's like he, he didn't care for Ludwig. He thought Ludwig was too hard. He's like, F this guy. I think the, like, the title of the video was Ludwig. F this guy. <laughs> so he thought Ludwig was really hard. Um, now, if he knew that Ludwig killed Maria, he'd hate Ludwig even more. But. Yeah. He would have put a little more effort into it. Yep. I must avenge Maria before I kill Maria myself. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Deepest lore. But I, I sincerely agree with you on that, by the way, that Maria did not kill herself. But that's another matter, I guess. Yeah, that's a story for another day. It is. I guess maybe we should talk about the next mission. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's see. What's the next? Where did we stop? Oh, right. We meant Billy Lurk, who is clearly not Billy Lurk and is completely unrecognizable. Nope. <laughs> no, no one who has played the first game in the DLC would possibly recognize her as Billy Lurk. Yeah, especially since it's the same voice actress as well. But yep, yep, yep. Know. Nope, nope. They fool me. <laughs> completely up to interpretation. Yep. Actually, the first time I played Dishonored 2, it had been so long since I played Dishonored 1 that I, like, forgot who Billy Lurk was. <laughs> so they fooled you! <laughs> they did! Because, <laughs> like, it had been so long that I just forgot, and then at the end of it, I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then you're like, that explains why she had all those pictures of doubt in her room. <laughs> what? <laughs> she was in doubt, gang? <laughs> What is all this Dowd stuff? <laughs> Who's Dowd? I don't designer? understand. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, because I think I'm not sure I paid really good attention the first time I played through the game, though, as Corvo, because I'm like, holy crap, I'm Corvo again. This is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I just wasn't paying attention to the lore, really. <laughs> <laughs> but now, of course, since then, the second time I played through and later, you know, I've obviously paid closer attention yeah. and I knew right away it was Billy Lurk. But yeah. That's neither here nor there. But yes, and she's obviously an amputee and lost her eye and stuff. So it's sad. Very sad. It is. But she deserved to die long before this. So I guess if she, all she does is loses an eye and, and, and an arm, she's getting off easy. Because yeah. the, the crap she pulled in the DLC, she deserved to die. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. yeah. But, the, but in the canon, Dowd let her live and go on about her business. And mm-hmm. 
she remains grateful and remorseful about that. But yeah. Anyway, but for now, that's part of why I think she agrees to help us. Yeah. Because she's kind of sure. she, she regrets helping to assassinate Jessamine, and she regrets the other thing she did after that. Yeah. Um, which we explained in a prior podcast. Yeah. So check that out. Woohoo! So the second mission is Edge, Edge of, of the, the World. World. This is where you arrive at. Uh, Karnaka, and this is where the outsider first appears to you. Um, of course, his dialogue will differ depending on whether you're Corvo or Emily. If if you're Corvo, it's basically, hey, long time, no see. What's up, friend? Yeah. <laughs> if it's Emily, though, it's interesting, because remember how we said before that he does, he won't appear to anyone unless he finds them interesting, and he only appears to just a handful of people in any generation. I think at, I think we know of, like, eight people who have received his mark. And so, you know, out of the millions of people who live in the world and have lived, that's not many. Probably billions, not just millions. Yeah, that's right. Billions in the world. <laughs> Yet, we know of, like, I think eight who have received his mark. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, yeah. I mean, the Outsider's been the Outsider for 4,000 years, so there have probably been more yeah. since he became the Outsider. But um, there was a definite point in time when he became the Outsider, and that's sort of what Death of the Outsider revolves around. They mentioned it in Dishonored 2 sort of in passing, and I guess we'll get to that. Um, but the outsider appears to you, and one thing I thought that was interesting that he says to Emily is, "I never thought we'd meet." Oh, which is, if you know the the context, is the back door way of saying, "I never thought I would find you interesting enough to appear to you," because <laughs> <laughs> we know he only appears to people he finds interesting. Yeah, it's like a backhanded compliment. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe not even a compliment. It's like I never thought we'd meet. <laughs> <laughs> But now that all this has gone down and Delilah has, you know, usurped the throne, and you come, you come later to find out that he has a specific agenda in appearing to player character. It's it's not even so much they'd find you interesting. It's an unusual case. It's he he wants Delilah stopped for a specific reason, and that's why he appears to you and offers to give you powers and stuff like that. So he'll sort of introduce himself. He won't call himself the Outsider because he that, he didn't give himself that name. That's a name other people bestowed upon him. Um, but he appears to you and. After some conversation, he offers to give you powers. And in this game, you can choose to decline the powers or to accept them. Um, of course, I decline, I decline the powers every time because I'm a professional. Of course. I, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I accept because for me, a lot of the fun in these games is using the powers, you know. Yeah, so. I agree. Me too. But now, it, but if, it, interestingly, if you want the platinum trophy, you'll have to play through the game at least once without your powers. Oh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if you, because th- there's a trophy for basically refusing his offer of powers. So you have to play through the whole game using just your regular abilities. And that's hard. It, it can be done, but it's hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I always take the powers. I'm not, I'm not trying to platinum this game. So I'm like, okay, well, I'll take the powers. And, um, <laughs> powers you get depend on whether you're Emily or Corvo. Mm-hmm. And I gotta tell you, I never thought I'd say this, but I think I like Emily's powers better than Corvo's. Her powers are awesome. Oh, snap. How come? Well, it's like, um, they're, I think they're better for combat. Because it's like, with, with Emily, you can use, once you upgrade Far Reach, Far Reach is her equivalent to Blink. It lets her, you know, reach elevated places and stuff. But there's also an aspect of telekinesis to it. You're, you're not teleporting, you're actually pulling yourself. <laughs> And so once you upgrade the power, you can pull enemies towards you. Oh, yeah. And even, even like from a distance, like if you're way up high on a rooftop and they're down on the street, you can pull them up to you and take them out. <laughs> yeah. And it, it lets you choose whether to kill them or to incapacitate them. So it's a, if, on a low chaos playthrough, it's a really easy way to sort of take people out. You know, so I like that. 
And I like uh, Shadow Walk, which you turn into kind of this this shadow wraith that crawls along the ground. And once you update it, you can basically walk up to someone and just hit R1 or R2 to kill them or take them out. I also like the animation for it. It's so creepy. Oh, I know, right? You're this, this shadow monster. Thing. You're, <laughs> yeah. you're, you're crawling along the ground. And, and when you have that power queued up to use in your left hand, if you notice mm-hmm. her left hand, her left hand kind of fidgets and squirms in a way that it doesn't with any other oh, power equipped. Oh, interesting. So it's like, it's almost like she's sort of possessed by this thing. <laughs> oh. You know, and doppelganger is pretty good too. Emily can produce like, it's basically the equivalent of what you could do with Dowd in the DLC where you could summon an assassin to fight by your side. Um, Emily can summon like a doppelganger of herself. And once you up- properly upgrade the ability, the, the doppelganger will fight for you. And it will distract your enemies. And if your enemies kill the doppelganger, they'll assume they've killed you and they'll They'll go down off of a kind of a high alert state. They'll, they'll stop looking for you. And there's the Void Gaze, which allows you to summon like a spirit from the Void to mesmerize your enemies. And so her powers are really cool. Cor- Corvo has basically the same powers he had in the first game, only you can upgrade them in ways you couldn't before. And this time he has redirective Blink, which is something Dowd has in the DLC, which basically when you, when you hit the button to use Blink, it stops time. So that you can kind of change course in midair or take your time and plot and escape or whatever. Um, which is something I always liked about Dowd in the DLC. Corvo couldn't do that in the first game. Anytime you use Blink, time keeps going. But uh, otherwise, Corvo has all the same abilities he's ha- he has in the first game. You can summon the rats and you can summon the, the whirlwinds and stuff like that. Um, so that's pretty cool. But yeah, Emily's powers are just crazy theatrical to look at. And I really like them. They're very practical. Um, and they're, they're, like I said, there are two abilities she can use to incapacitate people, or more than that, because when your enemies are transfixed by the Void Gaze, you can sneak up behind them and choke them out and stuff, too. So They're just really, really super useful powers, and so I had a lot of fun playing through the game with her powers as opposed to Corvo's. <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah. So you accept the powers, and once it gives you the powers, you have to navigate your way through the Void, um, practicing using Far Reach, which is the first ability you get as Emily, or Blink if you're Corvo. And then you, uh, once you come so far, the outsider will give you this heart, you know, this, the same dead heart you had in the first game that told you where the runes were and stuff. Right. And you come to find out that the voice you hear in the heart is the spirit of Jessamine trapped inside the heart. Yeah. Which is kind of wild. And I assume that was the case in the first game, too, because I don't know why it would, because she was dead at that point, so I don't know why it would be different. Yeah. Uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's different. I don't know. <clears throat> in the first game, it's not explicitly told to you. Who the voice is, but I, I just I just assume it's Jessamine because it's clearly Jessamine in the second game. Yeah. Um, so I, I, so I think we can assume that it's unless I find something in like the novels that contradicts that. I think no, we can I'm pretty assume sure it's, it's Jessamine both times. Yeah, it's just I, they I'll try to confirm it in the second game. Right, they do, and then I think it's a different voice actress in the first game, so that's a little confusing. But that's that's more of a business matter than a <laughs> than for the lore, you know. So it's Jessamine, and um. Of course, you have to get these things called runes to upgrade your powers, and you can find these things called bone charms that, when you equip them, they'll give you a little bonus, like uh, increased health, or one of your powers will work a, work a little differently, or you know, some small benefit. Um, my favorite bone charms are the ones that allow you to replenish health and mana by drinking out of a tap. <laughs> that saves a lot of elixirs, because yeah. just like in the first game, there are two elixirs, a red one and a blue one, pretty much. Uh, the red one is the the uh, Solokov and Joplin elixir that cured the rat plague, and that restores your health. And then the blue one is the Atomeyer solution, developed by one Alexandria Hypatia, and that restores your mana. Of course, we'll see more of her later on. 
But that's the blue solution. And so you saw all that stuff. So you got the runes, you got the bone charms, and the heart will help you find the runes. It'll help you find the bone charms. And if you point the heart at people, it will reveal a secret about the person. Like anybody, whether it's an important NPC or just some random citizen or some random guard, you point the heart at them and squeeze it, and Jessamine will tell you a secret about them. Uh, And if you do that 40 times, you get an achievement, incidentally. So if you want to do platinum, you have to do that 40 times. It wants to yeah. a different person. Uh, so yeah, and she, a lot of times she'll have like some really interesting things to say about them. Sometimes it'll be a good person. Other times she'll tell you something really bad that they did, like they killed somebody or they stole something. Yeah. Um, once I had actually knocked someone out, but then I, <laughs> but then I pointed the heart at them, and Jessamine said that uh, they had done something terrible, like murdered somebody. So I went back and killed the person. <laughs> 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 so like, what you did? What? <laughs> oh well, you're gonna pay. Yeah. yeah. It was something I forget what it was, but it was something really bad. <laughs> so I'm like, "You jerk!" I wonder if Jasmine is ever wrong. I don't know. I mean, presumably she, she's a spirit, so who knows? Um, <laughs> we can assume she's right, I guess. Can you imagine you just killed an innocent person, Nick? How would you justify that in court? Y- you wouldn't. Um, <laughs> you're you're like, listen, this magic eight ball told me to do it. Okay. Well, you know, sometimes people will sometimes people will try to weasel out of something because their lawyers gave them bad advice. So Aww. my mother gave me bad advice, Your Honor. <laughs> <laughs> my dead mother gave me bad advice. <laughs> it probably wouldn't have worked, but it's worth a try. <laughs> <laughs> because even if the person did do something bad, it's not your place to take vengeance. You know, so it wouldn't work anyway. But yeah, my dead mother gave me bad advice. <laughs> Or my dead girlfriend, if you're Corvo. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just another day in Dunwall. Yeah, all these weird things happen. <laughs> so once you get done with the Outsider, you you wake up... Uh, actually, while you're in the Void, you can use the Heart to find two runes that you can use to upgrade your powers. Um, and then you leave the Void. And then you wake up again on the Dreadful Whale. And then when you wake up this time, you're awake for real. And the waking world, not the Void. Uh and what the void is is really fascinating, but that's, just, that's probably more for the, the podcast on the uh, death of the outsider, because there you really learn what the void is. Um, they kind of hint at it in earlier games, but that's where they really explain what the void is. Um, but yeah, it's really interesting. The void is this magical place and the outsider controls it. And that's where your powers come from, basically, is what we need to know for this point. Your connection with the void is what gives you supernatural powers. Um, so when you wake up in the real world in your little cabin that Megan has prepared for you, you have a little desk and it's got a little travel log you can write in and kind of look back over your adventures. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you pre-ordered the game and got the Imperial Assassin's Pack, you'll get more goodies. There'll be some goodies there regardless of what you did. Like there'll be your crossbow, maybe a couple of bone charms, some money. But if you, got the, <laughs> if you pre-ordered the game and got the Imperial Assassin's Pack, you'll have more money and more goodies. Yeah. Um, and one of the special things you get actually relates to the lore. It's like a, a journal entry from this musician who fled from Karnaka with Megan and Anton aboard the Dreadful Whale. She was on her way to Morley. Um, she was a musician. She couldn't really pay her fare, so she left that guitar. She left a guitar behind as some form of payment. Um, and so you can uh-huh. get the guitar. You keep it for yourself. It's just a little su- souvenir. And I think at once at one point the musician uh, tried to kiss Megan and it didn't work out so well. But yeah, she was leaving Karnaka because of the conditions in Karnaka that we'll describe shortly. Uh, had they'd gone bad? Yeah, so that's an interesting little anecdote <clears throat> uh, that you can find if you got the Imperial Assassins pack, which I did. 
I, I think I got it, but I forgot to put in the code, and so now it's expired, so I can't get it. But so, <laughs> so I had to research that. <laughs> Lol. I didn't get the extra goodies, but that's okay. So let's see. So yeah, we're in Karnaka. And Karnaka has a lot of, as we mentioned, has a lot of immigrants from all around. Um, when you get there, you see these kind of rugged, these tall, rugged-looking people working the docks, working the fishing boats and stuff like that. Um, they're kind of, they've got kind of this sandy blonde hair and like really grizzled appearances, you know? Um, most of those are immigrants from Morley, which has a contentious, really contentious history with the Empire. And then most everybody else you see could be from anywhere because Karnak is full of immigrants. Karnak is, like we said, is the capital of Sirkonos. And notable features that we'll come back to later are it has a big silver mine uh, in which the Duke works the miners relentlessly and kicks up so much dust that in the dust district, when the wind blows, you can't see a thing. <laughs> <laughs> the Duke of Sirkonos, who, as we remember, helped Delilah overthrow us, is basically running the mine uh, because the true owner of the mine... Uh, Stilton, gosh, uh, Aramis Stilton has disappeared, ostensibly. Of course, we don't know that. Uh, they're, they're putting on pretenses like Stilton is still in public and going along with everything the Duke says. But he's actually gone crazy and locked himself up at his mansion, and the Duke is secretly providing for him. <laughs> <laughs> and not letting him out of the mansion. Uh, but we'll, get, we'll come to that later. But yeah, the guy who owns the mines has basically gone nuts, so the Duke is running the mines. And he's working the miners relentlessly to mine all the silver that he can. To, to finance his orgies and lavish parties and things of that sort. Yeah. <laughs> and so he's doing that, and then he's given the, the Grand Guard, which is the equivalent to the City Watch in Karnaka. He's given them basically free reign to do whatever they like. Uh, to confiscate or commandeer property. To They're going around levying these arbitrary taxes at will just to line their own pockets. They're really sort of oppressing the people. And so people are starting to flee Karnaka for those reasons, you know. Uh, the tourism has really died down. The, the buildings are going into a state of dilapidation. Uh, things have just generally gone south under Duke Luca Abel. Now, the Duke's father, Theodanus Abel, was a good ruler, and the Karnaka prospered under his reign. Once his worthless son took over, things really started to go to pot. Um, with, one th- with one bright spot, that, with two bright spots that might offset it, one is the silver mine, which brings in a lot of money, and the other is the fact that Sir Ka- uh, Karnaka is very windy. Which you learn in the Dust District mission because you can't see <laughs> when the wind blows. But Karnak is very windy and they've got windmills. With whale oil becoming scarce, uh, the windmills have become an alternative source of power. And because Karnak is so windy, that gives them a real advantage over other areas of the empire that aren't so windy. And so until somebody develops alternative sources of energy, Karnak is going to be fine without the whale oil. And so they've got an advantage over other parts of the empire. Um, so yeah, interesting little tidbits. So it's, it's it's a windy place. They've got a silver mine. They've got a corrupt and despotic duke. Yeah. And there's also the blood fly concern. But you know, if you remember in the first game, rats were everywhere. And the more people you killed, the more rats there were. Well, here it's the same with the blood flies. The blood flies are these little these big huge bugs. They're like I think each one's like I don't know, 6 in, like a foot long or something. They're they're really big bugs. And what they do is they build nests inside of corpses, these big sort of, they almost look like beehives, only massive, you know, as big as a person. Yeah. They'll find a, <laughs> they'll find a corpse and they'll plant eggs in it and they'll build a nest on it. And then if they plant their eggs inside of a living person, that living person will get blood fly fever. And yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a lot like the weepers in the first game, except you're still aware of yourself. But your mind is warped to the point that the only thing you care about in life is protecting the blood flies and their nests. 
the only thing you care about. You'll kill or fight anything to protect the blood flies in their nests. And you become really empathetic with the blood flies. If anything agitates them, you'll get upset. You're like, oh, I'm sorry, but oh, you're upset. Oh, precious. Oh, let me see what's wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's like they tried to make, they were like, how do we do the plague of the rats, but even grosser and worser? I think they succeeded. <laughs> yep. We use bugs this time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> so gross. And of course, the more people you kill, the more blood fly nests there'll be because they nest in corpses, you know. Yeah. And so whenever you encounter a place that's infested with blood flies, the only way to stop them is to destroy the nest. As long as there's at least one nest nearby, they'll just keep coming and they'll keep attacking you. Um, the nests are vulnerable to fire. One shot from your pistol is enough to destroy one. So there's no need to go wasting, you know, incendiary bolts or anything. You're, you're more explosive ammunition. So one shot from your pistol is enough. If the nest is on the ground, you can just take your sword and destroy it if you can fight your way through the blood flies to get there. Uh, but those that are high up, you'll have to use like a pistol or some ranged weapon. Mm -hmm. uh, unless you can, unless you invest in like the agility enhancement, you can jump up high enough, I guess, to get it. But that's kind of hard. I'd rather yeah. just shoot it. <laughs> you know? um, so yeah, as long as there's one nest nearby, they'll keep coming. But once you destroy all the nests in the area, they'll, they'll turn passive. They'll, they'll, they'll just stop attacking you. So like, uh, no point in living. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. um, and so there, you find various notes you know, telling you how to deal with the blood flies. So that's an interesting mechanic in the game, that you have to fight your way through these blood fly nests at some point, certain points. Uh, so yeah, so you got the Grand Guard running roughshod over the people. You got the Duke having orgies and lavish dinner parties while the people are going hungry. You've got them working the miners to death in the silver mines against the ardent protestations of miners' advocates. So things in Karnaka are not great. And so your uh, first objective, though, when you wake up on, wake up on the boat is... You have to confer with Megan about the upcoming mission. Now, before you talk to your allies, or at least before you get on the skiff to go to your mission, it's always a good idea to explore the boat, because you can find runes and other items. You can find little side quests to do, and they'll have rewards to them. But it's always a good idea to explore the boat every time before you undertake a mission, because things change on the boat over time, and there's more you know, rewards and things to get. So explore around the boat, maybe do some dinky little side quest, and then talk to Megan. And Megan will tell you that Anton Sokolov relocated to Karnaka some years ago and apparently forgot all his money. <laughs> and while he was in Karnaka, he discovered that the Duke was conspiring with Delilah to overthrow Emily. Or at least he discovered evidence that pointed him in that direction, at least. You know, he, he got wind of the coup. And apparently Delilah and the Duke found out about it because he had been living with Megan on the Dreadful Whale. The two got really close. I think Megan looked at him as kind of a doddering old uncle, you know. <laughs> they bickered and they squabbled, but they really you could tell they really cared for each other. And so when Anton had decided to return to Dunwall and warn Emily and Corvo about the coup, he was kidnapped. Megan witnessed it. Um, she assumes it was the crown killer, came right onto the boat grabbed Sokolov, and took him off toward the Adermeyer Institute of Infectious Diseases. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a very, very happy and upbeat appealing name for an institution. <laughs> yeah. Adermeyer Institute for, of Infectious Diseases. He, she, she saw the crown killer take Antov onto the property. She followed him for a little while, but she didn't dare follow them into the institute because she didn't know what she would run into. Uh, she'll let us do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, of course, the chief alchemist at this institution is one Alexandria Hypatia, who, as we mentioned, developed the Adamire solution. Yeah. At one time, she was 
kind of a public face. You know, her whole thing is she wants to help the miners because the miners are breathing in all this dust. She's developed a serum to kind of clear the dust out of their lungs and help them breathe better and stuff. And she's doing other things to to heal the people who are sick of the blood fly fever. And she's investing all her she's spending all her time trying to help sick people. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. So she, it's really admirable <clears throat> in that way. But now, Adermeyer Institute has been basically shut down. And you come to find out that the Duke has essentially imprisoned her on site. She can't leave. And so you're like, well, what's this? Why has the Duke essentially confined her to the premises of Adermeyer Institute? Ostensibly, she hasn't been confined there, but the Duke's like, well, she's chosen to cloister herself there so that she can focus full time on her work. Nobody come near the Institute. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, Nothing suspicious and, there. Just don't come here. Meanwhile, there are all these security devices. You know, there's walls. <laughs> there, like there are guards patrolling. There are like walls of light and even a watchtower guarding the place. You try to if you try to approach this place, you're going to get killed. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Unless you're Emily or Corvo. Um, but yeah, he's got you know walls of light are again these just these walls of electricity that will zap you and kill you if you try to walk through them without reversing the polarity. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got walls of light, they've got guards, they've got a watchtower that will try to shoot you on sight unless you deactivate it or reverse the polarity. So all these security precautions, the place is fortified like a fortress, but yeah, she's just chosen to cloister yeah. herself there so she can focus on her work. <laughs> Meanwhile, there we go. It's impregnable! <laughs> but she, she's just there, you know, because she wants to focus on her work. That's basically what he says. Uh, and, you know, never mind all the security precautions that have been installed there now. So yeah, so so you part of the part of what you're trying to do is unravel that mystery. But your mission here, though, is not to to infiltrate Adamire. Your mission here is to get to the institute because, like we said, there are all these security precautions up. You have to navigate past all this stuff and actually get to the door of the institute or an entrance to it. And that's the mission, basically. You have to get to the institute. Um, and that that's done in multiple steps. Your first objective is to get to Adamire Station, where there's a carriage that you can take the rest of the way to the institute. Um, of course, you're trying to find a lead on Sokolov, you're trying to learn more about the Tron Killer, and you're trying to get Hypatia to help you figure all this stuff out. Yeah. Um, so there are several different ways you can get to Adermeyer Station. Um, you can you start at the dockyard, and you just kind of make your way through. Um, there's a lot of good stuff to explore in the dockyard, so you want to make sure you kind of take your time. The big obstacle to the station is a wall of light. You know, the big wall that zaps you. So, perhaps the most interesting way to get past that and into the station is with the help of one Mindy Blanchard. Very interesting character. Minor character, but very interesting. Yeah. Um, if you point the heart at her, Jessamine will tell you that she loves to steal from the rich, delicate people as she resents them for how easy their lives are. And she's also a member of a gang called the Howlers, not to be confused with the Hatters that we talked about <laughs> Yes. You know. And they're called the Howlers because they use these special bolts, these special arrows that sort of make this howly screaming sound when they're shot. Uh, they, you know, it's really loud. <laughs> and those arrows are actually useful against the witches you fight later on because they'll disorient your enemies and allow you to either sneak away or move in for the kill or incapacitation. So they're really useful, but the, those weapons are unique to the Howlers, and so that's where they get their name. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Once you make your way over to the black market shop and. Of course, a lot of areas will have these black market shops where you can buy stuff. Um, and there's also a way to break into each one and kind of loot the place. And if you do it at least once, you'll get a trophy. And so to get the platinum, you'll have to do it at least once. Of course, each time you do it, the owners will get more and more cautious. And so it'll get harder and harder to, you know, break in. 
But right outside the black market shop, you'll find Mindy Blanchard. And she'll ask you to do something really weird. She'll say, I need you to find a certain corpse and bring it to me. And then if you do that for her, she will have her henchmen. Like, she's not just a member of the Howler. She's um, basically a lieutenant to Paolo, who is the leader of the gang. She's his right-hand gal. You know. And so she's got some authority within the gang. And so if you bring her this corpse of one named Amadeo Monte, she will have her underlings uh, de-electrified. You see, the carriages run along these electrified rails, right? <laughs> kind of like the subway. Yeah. Um, and so if you do this favor her, for her, she'll have her underlings deactivate the rails leading into the station, or de-electrify the rails leading into the station so that you can just walk across them. Because without that, if you land on the rails, you'll get electrocuted and you'll die. Yeah. <laughs> um, so she'll, she'll de-electrify the rails so that you can just get on the rails and walk right into the station. Mm-hmm. You know, and plus, doing the side quest is really easy and you uncover some lore while you do it. So that's, that's what I did this last time. So I'm like, okay, I'll I'll bite. I'll I'll get your corpse for you, even though this is really weird. Yeah. Um, once you find her diary, you come to you come to find out that she worships the outsiders. She's into the occult. She's into carving whale bones and doing all these weird rituals and stuff. And she's got tattoos all over her that are presumably yeah. presumably meant to invoke black magic. So no doubt. Um, and of course, the the particular person Amadeo Monte, whose corpse she asked you to get, she had a relationship with him in life. Um. They became friends at, you know, the Crone's Hand Pub, which is sort of the Howler headquarters. Uh, Amadeo also worshipped the Outsider and had all sorts of occultish paraphernalia and artifacts and propaganda in his room. Until he was discovered by the Abbey of the Everyman, our favorite religious institution. (laughs) Of course, they're, they're opposed to all things Outsider. So they found out, they captured him, and they interrogated him until he died. Because... Why wouldn't you? <laughs> and so, t- to get to his body, you have to get to the interrogation room at the overseer outpost. And the overseers are sort of the military side of the Abbey of the Everyman. They, you know, they pillage and they burn a paraphernalia and they interrogate people and imprison people and do all these things to try to suppress the proliferation of occultic teachings and propaganda related to the outsider. <laughs> like they don't worship any god. They're just their whole thing is they want to. Uh, you know, stop the the influence of the outsider in any way that they can. And they build their whole theocracy or their whole theology around resisting the influence of the void and the outsider. And that means, uh, you know, imprisoning or killing or suppressing anyone who worships the outsider and practices black magic. So, yeah, all, the, all that good stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's, they don't serve any god. It's just an ideal, opposing the outsider and resisting his influence. Um, so it's like they're oriented around opposing the devil as opposed to worshiping god, I guess you could say. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yeah. Because the outsiders, their conception of the devil, I guess, mm-hmm. and the the other arm of the abbey is the uh, the the oracular sisters, which th- those are all women. The overseers, the military side, they're all men. The oracular sisters are all women, and they're the ones who really run the institution, I think. Uh, but we'll get to them because they they play a key part in another mission. So but the ones you deal with now are the overseers. You have to sneak into the overseer outpost and find his body and bring him bring his body back to. Megan, or is it Megan? It's not Megan. It's uh, Mindy. Sorry, I got confused. Bring his body back to Mindy, and she'll have you know a plot already dug for him. <laughs> yeah. So maybe she just wanted to give him a proper burial, or maybe she wanted to use his bones to carve runes or something. Who knows? Yeah, I don't know. It was very weird. I never quite understood what that was. It's like if you read her diary, they were good friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
before the overseers got a hold of him. So maybe it could be she just wanted to give him a proper burial, or it could be that because like in, in, if you read the the first novel, the corroded man, um, it's not just whale bones that can be used for these arcane rituals. You can use human bones too. So it could be she wanted to use his bones for some arc, you know, some ritual, you know, because the the character you see in the novel actually kills someone just to use his bones for like a magic ritual to summon the powers of the outsiders. So it's like. Um, so you can use human bones for a ritual. So it's either a sentiment she wanted to give him a burial, or she wanted to use his body parts for some ritual. So who knows? Um, but once you bring the body to her, she'll have her underlings deactivate, or not deactivate, de-electrify the rail, and you can just walk right in. You don't have to do that, but I think that's the most fun and interesting way to do it. Plus, you, you learn some interesting lore when you do it, too. So, yeah, you do that. However you do it, you get to the station, and then you take the carriage up to... Adermeyer Institute, and you've completed the second mission. There's some other things you can do too, like you can, like there's a, a merchant you can save from summary execution in the street by the Grand Guard. Um, you come to find out that uh, one of the merchant, you know, his sister insulted the Duke, so he had her hands cut off and he had her executed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and after he had her hands cut off, he had her shot to death uh, by firing squad. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And you, you can go to this place called Winslow Safe Shop, and if you can guess the combination, you can find the combination to the safe. You found out they were having a contest to see if, like, the people could guess the combination to the safe. You could get the contents, and you can find the combination and open up the safe. There's all sorts of interesting little things you can do. Uh, but that's basically the highlights of it. So we've, we've completed this mission because we've gotten to Adermeyer Institute. And the next mission is called The Good Doctor. It's like you don't go back to the boat or anything. It, it just picks up right after. Uh, this mission. So you have to go inside Adermeyer Institute. And inside the Institute, you have four objectives, basically. Um, you have to find Hypatia and see what she might know about the Crown Killer or Sokolov's whereabouts. You're pretty sure that the Crown Killer is somewhere on the premises, so you want to take out the Crown Killer. Mm-hmm. You want to learn what happened to Sokolov, and you want to deactivate the watchtower guarding the Institute so that Megan can bring the skiff close enough to pick you up. Yeah, a lot of things to do. It's a very busy mission. <laughs> it's it's a very busy mission. Um, and if and if you're wondering, you know, why Megan couldn't just take you just take the skiff directly to the institute? That's why that watchtower would blow her up. <laughs> she yeah. did. So you, have to, <laughs> you have to deactivate the watchtower so it won't shoot missiles at her. Yeah. And blow her up. So you go inside, and there's all sorts of things you can find and do. And of course, we don't have time to get into all of it. Mm-hmm. But um, so. What, and there's a lot of different ways you could complete the mission. So the way I'm about to describe is not the way to complete the mission. It's one way among several. But I think it's the most interesting way, narratively speaking. Because you get some good cutscenes and you get some good lore and some good dialogue. And so I'm going to describe it the way I did it the last time. Um, but there are at least five, four or five other ways you could do it. Mm-hmm. Um, as you explore the Institute, you learn about a guy named Joe Hamilton. Which is a surprisingly pedestrian name for this universe, I think. <laughs> You've got Amadeo Monte, and you've got Corvo <laughs> Atano, and you've got Emily Caldwin and Joe Hamilton. <laughs> it's like Corvo, Delilah, Dowd, and Joe. Joe. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like Luke in Star Wars. It's like you've got Han Solo and Palpatine and uh, Am- Amidala and Luke. Luke. <laughs> Obi-Wan and Luke. Yoda. (laughs) So Joe Hamilton. Um, 
he has been a janitor at the Admire Institute for a long time, since you know the reign of Theodanus Abel, who was Duke, the current Duke's father. If you find Alexandria Hypatia's diary, it reveals that Joe Hamilton has been acting strange of late. Uh, he's been babbling about the crown killer, and he thinks that uh, he thinks he knows who the crown killer is, and the crown killer's on site. And so he, he kept on ranting and raving about the crown killer to the point where the Grand Guard have locked him up in a room, like, way at the top of the Institute. Yeah. Um, and if you don't do anything, upon learning this, the Grand Guard will eventually shoot him in order oh, to wow. keep him from saying anything to the public. They'll just kill him. But if you intervene and dispatch the guards who are attending to him and talk to him, he's, he's so... His mind is so addled that he can't really tell you anything useful um, because he's whatever he's seen has really got him traumatized but if you find his diary it'll say that he believes that Dr. Bartholomeus Vasco is the crown killer. Vasco is Hypatia's is assistant um, and Vasco has been missing for quite a while and so at, at this point you're led to believe that uh, Vasco is the crown killer well, not me. I pretty much guessed who the killer was the second their yeah. name appeared in the game. I was like, it's you. You did it. <laughs> Brilliant strategy. I mean, the game, uh, the game sort of subtly hints that it may not be Vasco. It may be yeah. somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> Especially once you see Hypatia walking around. <laughs> like, you, you could, like, you can observe her in hiding um, and find little notes that she has left. And what you piece together is that something's wrong with her. Right? She's forget. She's she used to. She's very intelligent, and she used to be very sharp and focused. And she used to do great work, but she complains now that she's she's forgetful. She hears auditory hallucinations of someone calling out to her. She's just not focused. She she she, she something's not right there. Yeah, sometimes she metamorphoses into a monster, and she's like, "What's up with that?" There's that too. <laughs> that little trifling detail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's got you know basically split person, kind of like the movie Split, you know, split personalities, pretty much. Um, but you know, as you as you search around, you'll eventually find Vasco, and if he's the crown killer, then he's a sorry one because he's in really <laughs> he's in really bad shape, right? Yeah. He's basically mortally injured. Uh, well, you go to the recuperation area and you find him. He 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 it basically looks like his body's burnt when you see him. And he's mortally wounded. And if he's still alive at this point, he will tell you that, as you just said, Hypatia is, in fact, the crown killer. Plot twist. Uh, dun, dun, dun. But it's not her fault, though. No. What happened was she, she as we said, she developed this serum. I don't think it's the same as the Atomire solution. I think it's a different serum that, you know, the, the, the miners in the silver mine, they breathe in all this dust. And so this, the serum was meant to clear out their lungs and help them breathe better and have better quality of life and things. Uh, but she tested an early version of the serum on herself. Bright idea. Yeah, of course. That's how you do it. Because <laughs> that's, that's how standard medical and scientific testing are done. Yeah. Um, and, when she did, <laughs> and when she did that, now, on the one hand, it did clear out her lungs. So, so it worked. That, that was good. It should go uh, to production right away. Right away. Uh, but one small side effect, though, it warped her mind. <laughs> it's going to be in small print, you know? It, you know, side effects may include uh, split murderous personalities. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It, it, it fractured her mind and gave rise to this alternate personality called Grim Alex. Mm -hmm. And that is the crown killer. Mm -hmm. 
And the reason that Duke Luca Abel has her cloistered in the Institute is because when Grim Alex manifests, Duke will tell her to go kill so-and-so, and she'll go do it. And, you know, she bides her time. She can't wait. She enjoys killing people, so she can't wait for the Duke to give her her next kill order. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and when and when Grim Alex comes out, her actual physical appearance changes a bit. Like, her eyes start to glow, and she looks like a monster, pretty much. And Hypatia, at this point, is, un- is unaware. Or if she is aware, it must, it, 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 like, feels like a dream or something. She doesn't think it's real, you know. She doesn't think it's real, if she's aware of it at all. Um. And so yeah, Grim Alex comes out. And then as you're talking to Vasco and he's explaining all this to you, he says that he has devised a cure that, if administered, will reverse the effects of the serum and destroy the personality of Grim Alex. So you don't have to kill her. Yeah. You can. You can. But you don't have to. Mm-hmm. I think you're better off to do the non-lethal option here because if she's alive, she'll be grateful to you. She'll come and live on the dreadful whale for a while and she'll give you items and help you out in small ways. If you spare her. So I think you're better off to spare her for that yeah. reason. I think it's one of the few missions where the non-lethal option actually turns out okay. Yeah, it does. She actually goes back to her work. And if you play the Death of the Outsider, that's the canon ending where you spare her and get rid of Grim Alex. And she does. she goes on to do a lot of good things after that. So it's actually a happy ending on the non-lethal solution for once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it's very rare. Very rare. Um, yeah, so... But he'll tell you to, he'll he'll tell you what the ingredients are. You have to round up the ingredients and then take them to the lab and put them on a Bunsen burner and boil them until they coalesce into the cure. Mm-hmm. And you have to find this syringe and you'll put the solution into the syringe. And then, um, the at that point, the only way to to incapacitate Grim Alex without killing her is to administer the serum. You can't knock her out. Like it, sleep darts won't work on her. You can't choke her out. The only way to render her unconscious is to administer the cure. Um, Failing that, you'll have to kill her. Yeah. And it's really creepy because she walks around looking for you all over the place if you try to sneak and hide. One thing I didn't realize until I researched it on the wiki, she can actually smell you like a like a wolfhound can. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Because you know how the wolfhounds can smell you? Yeah. Oh, that's so creepy. She has the same sort of aura that, that wolfhounds have that allows her to smell you. Uh-huh. Um... So at least that's what I read on the wiki, and so far I found the wiki to be pretty reliable. So oh yeah, this wiki is super good. I'll post yeah, it in it the description. Absolutely, no. I yeah. every every time we do one of these, I spend a lot of time in the wiki just just yeah, filling in the, the gaps. Yeah, it's really really well done. Um, the guy who presides over it, I forget his name, but he does a really good job. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I always consult that heavily to prepare for these because because <laughs> you know you just playing through the game, there are things you might overlook or brush off, you know, and. But the wiki will will state it outright, and you'll get kind of fill in the gaps. So it's really good. But yeah, so she can smell you in addition to just looking for you with her eyes and stuff. So it's it's really really creepy the, the way she talks and things. It's just really yeah. creepy. Yeah. And as you as you're talking to Vasco, there's this cool cinematic scene where she'll burst in and she'll knock like this shelf over top of you and pin you down for a second, and then she'll pick him up and drag him off and kill him. <laughs> oh yeah. So the whole thing is very spooky. It is very spooky. Now, if you somehow provoke her into turning into Grim Alex before you find Vasco, then when you find him, he'll be dead. But there'll be a note nearby his body that will give you basically the same information that you would have gotten by talking to him, but you won't get this big cinematic scene, <laughs> you know. So I, I like talking to him better because then at least you get the big scene. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so it's it's kind of cool. And the thing she says as she drags him off, she's like, I've always wanted to taste your flesh, Vasco, or something crazy. Uh. It's, <laughs> like, 
That's not exactly what she says, but it's something crazy yeah. like that. I've always wanted to see what you tasted like or something along those lines. <laughs> or what it would be like to kill you or you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she, then she drags him off and you know what's going to happen to the poor guy. She's going to throw him a surprise party? Yep. <laughs> surprise birthday party. Hey! <laughs> so is at this point, yeah, once you put together the cure and inject her with it, Grim Alex will be gone. Yeah. And of course, Hypatia herself will be disoriented, uh, and eventually she'll go back to the uh, to the dreadful whale, and she'll she'll have her own little room there for a little while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then she'll give you some items and help you out before she takes off to resume her work. Mm-hmm. So that's actually a happy ending. Or you could just kill her and deprive the world of her intellect and contribution. <laughs> but in the process, there, there are a couple of special things you can do. You, if you can actually find Vera More's diary somewhere in the institution, and do we remember who Vera More is? Who is she? Granny Rags! <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Yeah, dun, dun, dun. You find out that Granny Rags, who we know and love from the first game, actually spent some time incarcerated at the Institute. Mm-hmm. It's like, at one time, Adamire Institute was kind of a getaway for the rich and influential. Almost, like, sort of like a spa, I guess. Yeah. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a solarium. Uh, so a very, very <laughs> relaxing place. But over time, it was converted into a hospital, an institute for infectious diseases. Of course. Uh, and of course, when, of course, as we know, Granny Rags used to be a noble woman, very prestigious, but eventually she, get, she went to Pendicia, where she learned of the outsider and got wrapped up in the occult. Yeah. Um, and of course, she started acting weird, and so people thought she was nuts. <laughs> and so she, she wound up in the institution, right? Because uh, I, I guess not only was it an institute for infectious diseases, but it was also sort of a sanitarium, too, I guess. Basically, a hospital. A hospital. I, it, I guess it had a psych ward, mm-hmm. um, and that's where Granny Rags spent her time at the institution at the psych ward. Um, uh-huh. Of course, she was violent and uncooperative. She writes in her diary that uh, they tell me that if I keep behaving, they might let me go home. So I, I'm starting to dress like a proper lady. I'm asking for afternoon tea, and I've stopped biting the attendants. <laughs> <laughs> So it's like, okay, Granny Rags, we got you. <laughs> yeah. Because she can't wait to get back to her home so she can, you know, keep carving runes and worshipping yeah. the, out- worshiping the outsider and stuff. Yeah. I think Pandissi is actually where the outsider visited her. I'm not sure. But I think, because that's where she really got wrapped up in the occult and obsessed with you know, bone charms and runes and magic and that sort of <laughs> thing. So I, I want to say the outsider visited her in Pandicia, but it may be that she just got interested in the occult there and he visited her after, he came, after she came back to Dunwall. Uh, but I'm not sure where exactly where it was, but uh, her visit to Pandicia is where it sort of started to go downhill for her in terms of getting wrapped up in the occult and losing her position of nobility and all that stuff. Uh, but so I thought that was a really interesting and relevant throwback to the first game. Yeah, yeah. Uh, of course, we haven't seen the last of Granny Rags in this game because we still have to deal with Paolo. Uh, but that's <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and he has uh, an artifact from her that gives him a special advantage. <laughs> You could say it's an artifact, but uh <laughs> so anyway, by the end of the mission, we've learned that Sokolov has been taken to the home of one Kirin Jindosh, mm-hmm. grand inventor to the Duke of Sirkonos. And if people who know the lore and are listening to this are probably like, Why haven't you mentioned Jindosh until now? Because he's a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm mentioning him now because the next mission takes us right into his house. Uh so we learned that Sokolov has been taken to the home of Kirin Jindosh. Uh, Jindosh was once a student at the uh, Academy of Natural Philosophy, 
and he's a genius, at least comparable to Sokolov. I think Sokolov is still smarter, but Jindosh mm-hmm. is comparable to Sokolov in terms of his sheer genius. He's the one who invented the clockwork soldiers that we saw at the beginning of the game, who were, who were cutting up all of the uh, loyalists to, to Emily. But now Jindosh was expelled from the Academy of Natural Philosophy after two years, and it's unclear why. Uh, I don't think the game really expressly says why, but they, um, he was working toward a Master of Engineering. They expelled him from the Academy, and they expunged all progress he had made towards his degree. So, oh. they, just, so they, they kicked him out, and they erased any evidence. It's kind of like Lance Armstrong. They nullified all of his Tour de France wins after they found out he was doping or whatever. Oh, maybe this guy was doping as well. Maybe he was. <laughs> what? Well, you can't study on steroids. <laughs> so yeah, it's like he's cheating, right? Your your seven Tour de France wins were going to take away from you, Jindosh, even though he was not <laughs> he was not a cyclist. He was an inventor, but still. Yeah, there we so, go. Same basic concept. They kicked him out and they expunged all progress he had made towards his degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like the every relevant committee in the institution signed off on the decree so it's like the the whole academy banded together and kicked him out um and the reasons why are unclear he had he had built a couple of devices um and once they kicked him out they destroyed all evidence of the devices that he built except what he took with him i think so it's like they uh, something happened to where they just wanted nothing more to do with him and wanted to erase it's kind of like gwyn with the nameless king they wanted to erase any trace of him and the game doesn't really explicitly state what happened so it's up it's kind of like they they got a little miyazaki-esque here it's up for conjecture <laughs> what exactly happened um but in any case after he was expelled from the academy of natural philosophy he he somehow got mixed up with duke luca abel and got wealthy inventing the clockwork soldiers and selling them to the duke um wealthy enough anyway to build this elaborate clockwork mansion that we have to make our way through in the next mission um, the reason that Jindosh kidnapped so- had Sokolov brought to him was that right now it's very expensive to produce the clockwork soldiers. Very, very expensive. So he wanted Sokolov to help him find a way to build them more inexpensively, more efficiently. And if that were to happen, then the Duke would have, and of course the Duke is loyal to Delilah, so the Duke and then Delilah would have an army of clockwork soldiers to wreak havoc. And so we don't want that. And so now we're going to go to Jindosh's home which is the Clockwork Mansion, and our objectives are to enter the Clockwork Mansion, eliminate Jindosh so that he can't build the army of Clockwork soldiers, and to rescue Anton Sokolov, who, as we mentioned, has quite the knack for getting kidnapped. Yeah. Um, in, the first game, <laughs> in the first game, we kidnap him, and in the second game, we rescue him because somebody else kidnapped him. So he has a knack for getting himself nabbed. Poor Anton. <laughs> so by this point, he's too old and decrepit to do much about it anyway. Yeah. Uh, so you Anyway, you, your first stepping in is to get to the Clockwork Mansion. You confer with your allies, and Megan takes you on the skiff over to the streets of Karnaka. And so you navigate your way through the streets. Um, you, you have to go through two wards. It's kind of a process just to get to the mansion. You start in Lower Aventa, and then you take a carriage to Upper Aventa, and the carriage is blocked by a gate. You have to find the code to the gate or get past it some other way. Uh, and then you get up to the mansion. But on your way there, you'll have an interesting encounter if you go by the black market shop. Once you go inside the black market shop and you talk to the proprietor, she'll be like, hide, hide, quick. Paolo's coming. Paolo's coming. Yeah, that was so creepy. I hid under the table and it was like, oh, my God. I did, too. I did, too. Um, now, there's an achievement for killing him three times. And this is your first opportunity. Uh-huh. Um, 
but yeah, so you, you go hide and Paolo comes in and he, you know, basically threatens the owner of the black shop. You know, you sold me some bad ammunition or whatever, and uh, you expect, expect you to do better next time. And he's got his goonies flanking him. Yes. So after he intimidates the black market uh, person, oh, just to back up, Paolo is the head of the Howlers. I think we might have mentioned that, but I just want to make sure we did. Paolo's the leader of the Howlers. Mm-hmm. And in the Dust District, the, the Howlers are basically at war with the Overseers for control of the Dust District. Um, and, by, and after that, all of Karnaka. It's like, Paolo sees himself as a revolutionary. He sees all the bad and corrupt things that the Duke is doing. And so Paolo is trying to mobilize the Howlers to take back the silver mines from the Duke and reduce the Duke's influence and move Karnaka towards, you know, a regime that's not corrupt and self-serving like the Duke's is. Uh, so he sees himself as kind of a, a revolutionary figure on behalf of the people. But the reason he's at war with the overseers is that the overseers have gotten wind that he uses black magic. And of course, we can't have that. So they're doing everything they can to get rid of him. Um, so that's so, sort of some context there. So Paolo comes into the shop, and it's, like you said, it's really creepy. You, you hide under the table and watch him intimidate the, the gal. And then when, while he's there, you have an opportunity to kill him once. And if you do, he'll vanish, and then this horde of aggressive rats will appear in his place, and they'll attack you. Yeah, which is very familiar. Yep. A boss fight with Granny Rags. And so he'll, he'll disappear, and you'll, you'll find out why later. Basically, he, he carries around Granny Rags' hand with him. Yeah, <laughs> and in in the first game, if you killed her, she would just turn into rats and disappear. Mm-hmm. And to, to defeat her, you had to find this cameo in which she had basically sealed up her spirit. And if you mm-hmm. throw that into the conveniently nearby furnace, the cameo will be destroyed, and then she can be killed. Uh, but Paolo has a piece of her hand, right? Not a piece of it. He actually has her. I forget whether it's her left or right hand, but he has her hand. He carries it around in his pocket, and that enables him at least once per day to be killed and resurrect in his office. And so to kill him, you have to kill him twice before sunrise or rather before sunset. Yeah. Um, but you can't do that now. You only kill him once. So as he's leaving, the best way is just to kind of sneak up behind him and slit his throat real quick and you'll kill him. But yeah, man, that encounter is really creepy because <laughs> you're hiding under the table and you're like, holy crap. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, and then if you do that to Paolo, you'll talk to the shopkeeper and she'll be like, I can't believe you crossed Paolo and lived. Holy cow. <laughs> and if you're Emily, Emily will say, I've been trained by better, much better. We're talk- talking about Corvo, you know. <laughs> Thank you. And then if you do that, you'll get a special action at the end of the mission. Killed Paolo, comma, once. Apparently he's been killed quite a few times, but he always resurrects at his office. So that's the Abbey got wind of that, and that's how they knew he was using black magic. Because how could someone do that without using black magic? Um, and the outsider tells you about it in another encounter. He's like, Paolo doesn't give a fig for me, but he knows it pays to have an edge. That's why he's got <laughs> Granny Rags' old hand. Now, the game doesn't outright say it's Granny Rags' hand, but it, I think it heavily implies it. It all but mm-hmm. says, it, you know, that it's Granny Rags. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so you do that. And then if, however you do it, you get up to the Clockwork Mansion. And this is where things get really fun. <laughs> because Jindosh has built this whole mansion. It's like the whole mansion is interchangeable and reconfigurable. It's like as you make your way through it, once you arrive and once he's aware of your presence, he'll sort of, he'll, you'll hear him constantly speaking over this intercom. And depending on who you are, whether you're Corvo or Emily, he'll say different things. But he's basically either taunting you or congratulating you on your progress or commenting on the things you do throughout your time in the Clockwork Mansion. Like once you, you'll this is the first time you're actually going to fight a clockwork soldier, and the first one you destroy 
he'll complain that you're destroying his expensive creations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and there are, there are also human guards on the premises. And if you start mm-hmm. killing the guards, he's like, oh, now you're murdering my guards. Those are expensive to replace. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so not that he really cares for them. It's no. just, it's expensive to replace the guards. Yeah. So the whole mansion is a big puzzle. It's like you pull these levers yeah. and the, wa- the walls will move around and reconfigure. And the most efficient way to get through it is to kind of find your way between the walls and kind of make your way around. You can get past a lot of the obstacles that way. Um, but you can't necessarily find all the runes and things that there are to find that way. I managed to get all the runes and bone charms in that stinking mansion. <laughs> but it was not oh, easy. Oh, God, yeah. Because you have to figure out how to reconfigure. And there's this one room where if you pull the lever... What will come up out of the floor is an arc pylon, and it'll kill you if you don't get away fast enough. <laughs> yeah. Well, that arc pylon was the key in me, like, finishing the entire area. Because I was, um, I would, like, reprogram it, and then I'd make people come into the room. I'd be like, hey, I'm here. Come kill me. And then it would do the work for me. That's a good use of an arc pylon. You can kill, like, seven or eight people like that before it finally yeah. runs out of juice. Yeah. So I guess that was a high chaos playthrough. Uh, yeah, it turned into one. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's easy to do. <laughs> yeah. Because when the outsider first appears to you at the beginning of the game, he's like, are you clever enough to do it without spilling a river of blood? And I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So nope, nope, nope. And then when, when if you kill a bunch of people and get high, when Jessamine talks to you and you're Emily, she'll you know, talk about how you're going astray and you're killing too many people and you could have spared so many lives and all this other stuff. So she'll kind of like bemoan how you're becoming this, this killer. But anyway, so you make your way through the mansion and solve all the puzzles and reconfigure all the walls. And you have two basic objectives. You have to eliminate Jindosh and you have to rescue Sokolov. Jindosh is way up high in his laboratory. Sokolov is way down low in sort of a basement level that's called the assessment level. And I think it's more efficient to get rid of Jindosh first because that's one less... Because you, you know you're going to have to carry Sokolov out of there. He's not going to follow you on foot. You're going to have to carry him. And so getting rid of Jindosh is you know, one less obstacle to overcome on your way out of the mansion. You know? So I think it's it, more efficient to take care of Jindosh first. And as always, there are two ways to do it. You can kill him mm-hmm. and extinguish the great light of his genius from the world. Yeah. Um, or you can make him stupid. Uh, oh that was mean yeah yeah, that's what i did yep that's that's what that's the first time i played through that's exactly what i did um see he has this electroshock chair and i think that's what he calls it just the electroshock chair and he's been because sokolov has refused to help him find a cheaper way to manufacture his clockwork soldiers so he's trying to use the electroshock chair to sort of coax sokolov into compliance but he hasn't got it quite right yet uh if if he were to Right now, if he were to hook Sokolov up to the chair and apply it at full power, it would destroy Sokolov's genius intellect. He'd be yeah. reduced to an idiot, pretty much. And Jindosh actually used the machine on a baker once. <laughs> what happened was it erased the baker's memories, but left the baker still able to bake bread. <laughs> and so what Jindosh really wanted to do with the machine was to destroy those parts of Sokolov's brain that give him free will and the ability to be stubborn and resist, but leave that creative, inventive genius intact. And so Jindosh is like, well, you know, I was able to get rid of this baker's memories and leave him still able to bake bread. But, you know, Sokolov is no baker. I need his inventive genius. 
And so that's a bit more intricate than just remembering how to bake bread, you know. So he was afraid to use the device on Sokolov because he would destroy the inventive genius that he needed to help him make his clockwork soldiers cheaper to manufacture. So, of course, Sokolov was holding out. Um, and so what you can do is you can render Jindosh unconscious, put him in the chair, and then activate the machine to make him stupid. Now, that's easier than I'm making it sound. It's, a, it's actually kind of an elaborate puzzle you have to solve just to get yeah, the machine. Yeah, I, I didn't get it. I had to, like, look it up. I mean, so there's all these different things. It's like basically you're trying to get enough power to the machine to make it work. But there's all, you have all these things you have to move around and do. Uh, it's a really elaborate puzzle. Uh, so there's no shame in, in like looking it up because it's, it's really elaborate. And there's, there are all sorts of clues peppered about the laboratory. And you have to kind of piece the clues together and figure out. It took, it took me a while because it's so, yeah. mul- it's so multifaceted. But once you finally get it, strap him in the chair and get it and turn on the machine, he will scream and wail. He's like, you don't understand what you're doing. You don't understand what you're preventing. An age of advancement. <laughs> you know, he's yeah. like, but then you make him stupid. Yeah. Uh, and then later on in the game, you find audiographs and things where you find out he's, he really has become quite stupid. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, Oh, look, I, I found a butterfly. I, I plucked its wings. Oh, yeah. That's another one, perhaps, Faith, worse than death. Interestingly, if you look on the wiki, you see that, like, I guess there are some people who who argue vehemently that, well, just to back up, it, in Jindosh's case, it, it's it's really, really unclear whether the canon is that you kill him or make him stupid. Uh-huh. It's like, even if you look in, like, the novels and in Death of the Outsider, there's really not much evidence on it. Either way, um, in Death of the Outsider, you do come across like this puzzle that Jindosh made to guard the entrance to a safe. But that could, that was probably done before you either killed him or made him stupid. Mm-hmm. So you really don't know. Yeah. Um, and it, there's a really robust debate on the point among devotees of the game. <laughs> um, the people who uh, insist that the canon is that you made him stupid point to the second novel, which is called The Return of Dowd. And there's this point where, like, Dowd and Billy are, like, exploring the Clockwork Mansion. Um, and Billy comments that, uh, actually, I've got the book here. Let me open up to the quote real quick. She tells Dowd, she says, we're in the home of Kieran Jindosh. Well, former home. The owner was an inventor, loyal to the Duke of Sirkonos, and his coup against the Empress. But someone a friend of mine, that is, changed his fortunes. That's the money quote for the people who say that the canon is you made him stupid. Changed his fortunes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because they're like, why would she say changed his fortunes if he were still alive? It's a weird thing to say if he yeah. were still alive. Um, Jindosh doesn't live here anymore. Don't worry. We'll be safe. <laughs> I mean, that argument assumes that Billy is not at all trying to be evasive or untruthful. <laughs> you know? <laughs> If she if she were trying to be evasive, then it makes sense that she would say changed his fortunes, <laughs> you know, because death is a change in fortune. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I tend to think the canon is the non-lethal option just because it usually is. Yeah, it's true. You know, so just, you know, law of averages and probabilities. But, you know, it, it's one of the few cases in which the later materials like the comic books and the novels don't make absolutely clear what the canon is. You know, you might have killed him. You might have made him stupid. And you'll have some people arguing that, oh, well, you know, even if you made him stupid, he might have recovered his intellect somehow. And then they'll concoct these elaborate scenarios by which he might have recovered his intellect, and they're really too attenuated yeah. to make sense. So on this topic, there's a lot of debate within the community, and I just thought it would be good to point out. Because it's almost got like a Dark Souls 
Esque feel to it, the way people debate the point. Like, what happened to Jindosh? Nobody really knows, you know. And Billy, who's in a position to know, like I said, the only reference she makes to it is that cryptic reference in the novel when she and Dowd are exploring the Clockwork Mansion, you know. And so I'm, I'm glad I conveniently had the novel right here to look at. For the <laughs> See, uh, we're professionals. You know, we we're yeah. prepared. Well, speak for yourself. <laughs> hey, don't you call me a professional? I'm an yeah. amateur. <laughs> Dog on it. So yeah, so now that we've done whatever we're doing to Jindosh, now we have to rescue Sokolov. And so we have to go down into the assessment chamber. And this is kind of a weird place because it has all these, it's like a maze. It has all these walls up. But there are these, there are these pressure plates you can step on to, to make some of the walls you know, go down into the floor and kind of make your way over to where Sokolov is. But there's also a clockwork soldier yeah. patrolling the place. So you got to be careful. And um, in the part of this, of the place where Sokolov is kind of walled off, there's a pressure plate that he could use to leave, but then the clockwork soldier would kill him. Yeah. Um, and Jindosh leaves him this little note taunting him. Ha ha ha. You could get out, but there's a clockwork soldier here. So, you know, it would kill you. <laughs> I mean, it, that's it, not in so many words, but you know, that's basically, it's like, you know, you could escape anytime by stepping on this pressure plate, but my mechanical Marvel would soon intercept you or some, something like that, you know? Yeah. So Sokolov is in his bed. He's in rough shape. You know, he hasn't been well-fed or well-treated the whole time. Yeah. And so when he... It, it, how he greets you, of course, depends on which character you're playing. If it's Corvo, he's like, Oh, Corvo, only you could have made it this far. I'm so glad to see you. Aww. If it's Emily, it's more like, Oh, Emily, look how you've grown. Look how you've changed. I'm so glad to see you. And then yeah. he passes out. Just like in the first game, he'll be unconscious and you'll have to carry him out. <laughs> yeah. If this was Mario, there would be a note saying, your Sokolov is in another castle. Yep. <laughs> We're sorry. Your Sokolov is in another castle. <laughs> Somebody should make like a platformer of Dishonored where you're constantly trying to rescue Sokolov. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Set up like Mario. <laughs> like you're Corvo or Emily and you're platforming around and every time you finish the mission, we're sorry. Anton is in another castle. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. I love it. It, it could be one of these hardcore... Uh, like one of the streamers I follow is called Peaches, and his thing is he does these like really hardcore Mario games that are like mm-hmm. super hard. Oh yeah, yeah. It's, I think it's called like Kaiser Mario or something. They're super hard, mm-hmm. so you can make the game like that, and every time you get to the end, oops, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> like the Dark Souls of Mario, <laughs> mm-hmm. or the Dishonored of Mario, or the Mario of Dishonored, or some such thing. I don't know. But yeah, so you get Sokolov out of there. And of course, usually in these missions, like when you find the target, incapacitate them and have to carry them out. Or you don't incapacitate Sokolov, he just faints because he's been so mistreated. You carry him out. And usually more guards and clockwork soldiers will appear, even though they weren't there before. Because now you're trying to get someone out, so naturally they have to throw more obstacles at you. Because we can't just let you walk out. That'd be too easy. Mm -hmm. So once you solve the puzzle of the pressure plates and get him out of there, uh, this time three of Delilah's witches will be waiting for you. To intercept you, so you can either sneak past them or you know, fight them and take them out. So anyway, you get you finally get out of there and you get Sokolov back to the dreadful whale. He's back on the boat and everybody's happy. Yay! Uh, woohoo! And so after three days of recuperation, Sokolov. Actually, no, I'm skipping something fairly important. Once you get back to the boat and go to your little room and sleep, someone pays you a visit, and I bet you think I'm going to say it's the outsider. No, 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 it's Delilah. Ooh. It's like Delilah appears to you in the void in basically the same way the outsider would. She pulls you into the void and appears to her just like the outsider can do. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so basically, Delilah pulls you into the void, and she basically shares her backstory, which I think we basically covered in a prior podcast. But in a nutshell, it it is that Delilah is the illegitimate child of Emperor Uhorn, who is was Jessamine's father. Um, he had her. Well, he begat her by virtue of an illicit affair with uh, one of the kitchen workers. So Delilah's mother was basically a kitchen employee in the palace. And so Delilah lived in the palace because her mother lived and worked in the palace. Um, and she and Jessamine would play together. But clearly, Jessamine was the favored child. Um, Jessamine always got to go to court. And here by court, I don't mean court of law. I mean just the imperial court where the emperor would sit and talk to the advisors and officials and make official pronouncements and that sort of thing. Um, Jessamine would get to go to Imperial Court every day, and Delilah would just beg and plead for the opportunity to go to court and be a real princess. I'm going to be a real princess like Jessamine, you know. And Uhorn would say, oh, well, you know, it's just not convenient now for this reason and that reason. You know, the tides and the lunar uh, curvature and blah, 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 blah. Maybe next year. You know, do you just make excuses? Maybe next year. Uh, and of course, next year never came. because. He was ashamed of Delilah because she was a bastard child, so he was never going to showcase her as a princess, right? Had her by a, by a lowly kitchen maid, you know? Yeah. She, she, she's not imperial material. She's just my bastard child whom I wish I could kind of not have anything to do with. <laughs> yeah. And so this continues on for a while, and Delilah, of course, really wants to be a princess, but she's never treated as a princess. Until one day... Jessamine is fooling around and breaks something extremely valuable. We're not told what it is, but she just breaks something extremely valuable. Mm-hmm. And it Jessamine, was probably a, it was probably a limited edition Pip Boy. That's exactly what it was. <laughs> <laughs> canon. That's canon. Yeah. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. So Jessamine breaks it, and of course, being a stupid child, she blames it on Delilah. Mm-hmm. Of course, because Delilah is the unwanted bastard child, they believe yeah. Jessamine. So Delilah is severely whipped and punished. And her mother is fired from her job in the Imperial Kitchen, so they're cast out under the streets. Yeah. The, the cold, the, the very cold, very hard, very unforgiving streets of Dunwall. They're homeless, pretty much. And they eventually wind up in debtor's prison together, because uh, apparently Dunwall still has debtor's prisons, or at least they did at that time. And Delilah's mother is, dies kind of a slow, painful death due to prolonged mistreatment by one of the prison guards, which is very sad. Yeah. And then you come to find out later that Delilah couldn't afford a proper funeral, so she had to curl her mother's legs up underneath her and put her in this little box and just bury her where she could, you know? Yeah. yeah you don't find that out till later, uh, but that's just sort of interesting anecdote. And so Delilah ha- kind of had it rough. Yeah, the more you find out about Delilah, the more you feel like, uh, you're not entirely bad. Oh, yeah. So, like, we, I can understand where you're coming from a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I'd probably do the same thing. I'd kill Corvo and Emily both if I were you. Well, yeah, I'd, I'd want to take over the Empire and finally be a princess. You know? Yeah, I'd need my revenge, you know? Absolutely. I mean, you can kind of see where she's coming from. You yeah. Know? Um, I don't think she played any direct role in the assassination of Jessamine, but she certainly didn't mourn her sister. You know? Yeah, there we go. Um, but yeah, and she certainly sought to capitalize on the occasion, as we, mm. as we discussed in the prior podcast. When she, the first time she tried to take over. Um, and so, yeah, she eventually... But she had a real talent for painting and for witchcraft, uh, but she had a real talent for painting. At some point, the outsider visited her and gave her his mark, which gave her her supernatural powers. And from that point, she became really fascinated with witchcraft, or maybe even before then, became fascinated with witchcraft and the occult, and she became a very powerful witch. She fell in with Sokolov and became his painting student, and 
ran in the noble circles until they found out she was obsessed with the cult and she was really weird. And so they didn't want anything more to do with her. Uh, and then she founded the Brigmore Witches and all the stuff in the DLC happened and Dowd either killed her or trapped her in the void. And here we are, you know, basically. Yeah. Um, so Delilah explains all this to the player character. Um, and then uh, right after that, the heart speaks to you and asks you to set her free and put Delilah's spirit in the heart in her place. At this point, you don't understand what she's talking about. And you say, I don't understand. And Jessamine says, you will very soon. And then she leaves. And then shortly after that, you wake up in the boat. Actually, I think this is after you wake up in the boat. You learn from Anton that he was spying on Jindosh the whole time he was in captivity in the mansion. We learn that Kieran and a woman called Brianna Ashworth, whom we might remember from the DLC for Dishonored 1, uh, Kieran and Brianna Ashworth are building a device called the Oraculum. Uh, Brianna Ashworth is basically Delilah's right-hand gal, uh, her first lieutenant, pretty much, her closest confidant. And back in the day, um, Brianna Ashworth helped Delilah to establish the Brigmore Witches before Dowd defeated her. And she was all disillusioned for a long time, but then now that Delilah is back, she's working for Delilah again, and everybody's happy. Yeah. Ashworth was born into a wealthy family who sought to marry her off for financial gain. She ran away, felt like she was free for the first time in her life, got hooked up with Delilah, and the rest is history, pretty much. That's, that's the Cliff Notes version of it. Yeah. Um, interestingly, she lost her powers the first time Delilah defeated Dowd, but now that Delilah is back, she has her witchy powers back again. And she's more powerful than the average witch that you'll fight because her connection with Delilah is especially strong. So she's a little bit harder to defeat than your average witch that you'll encounter in the game, if you decide to kill her or incapacitate her. She's one of the targets. Um, you find out that she and Jindosh are working on a device called the Oraculum. And the Oraculum is, you come to find out, I'll just go ahead and explain yeah, it, yeah. It is a device that allows them to influence the prophecies and the visions of the Oracular Order. Because um, like we've said before, the, the Abbey of the Everyman, the, the religion, has two sides to it. The military side is called the Overseers, and they are led by a high overseer. Uh, they are all men, without exception. And they are the public face. They're the police and military side. They're the ones who ransack people's houses looking for evidence of the occult and interrogate people till they die and all that good stuff. Um, the Sisters of the Oracular Order, on the other hand, they're all women, without exception. And really, I think they're the ones in charge, if you really break it down. Uh-huh. Um, they, they tend to cloister themselves together, and they purport to have all these prophecies and visions that they then pass along to the overseers who put implicit faith in them, right? Uh-huh. Now, it, it's sort of hypocritical, because on the one hand, the Abbey is dedicated to opposing anything that smells like the occult or black magic. Yet they accept prophecies and visions and divination from these oracular sisters. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, isn't... Yeah. Is, isn't divination occultic? <laughs> yeah, it, it seemed a little weird. Right? It's, I mean, it's not like it's presented as the sisters are giving us their political musings or their insights gained from study. It's, it's prophecies and visions. Yeah. When the sisters deliberate, it is very much like a parliamentary body. They get together, they do their research, they discuss every aspect of the issue. And so it, they do study and research things. Which has led some people to say that they don't really get supernatural visions at all. It's just all from study and research. But I think the rest of the game really heavily implies that they are getting prophetic supernatural visions and prophecies from someplace. You know. And yet, and the overseers accept it as supernatural divinations, words from on high. Yet, 
the precise source is never specified, and it really smells a lot like divination, which is an occultic practice. So I don't see how they reconcile these things. <laughs> you know, you want to stamp out all indication from the consult, but you're accepting divination from these sisters of the oracular order. I think it's hypocritical. <laughs> Definitely. And so what the what the oraculum does is, is it it like you, it can tap into the energies of the void, right? It just to kind of back up the the, the sisters of the oracular order all share something of a telepathic connection with each other and it it lingers after death. Mm -hmm. So what Ashworth has done is she's basically dug up five bodies of dead oracular sisters and arranged them in a certain way and put all these magical runes and drawings around them. And she's, she and Jindosh have built this device that uses special optical lenses to channel the energies of the void into those corpses which in turn channels it into the oracular sisters and establishes a connection with the sisters and enables Ashworth to influence their prophecies and visions in ways that Delilah wants. And so it's a backdoor way for them to control the oracular sisters, which is a way to control the Abbey, or at least move it in the direction that Delilah wants. Pretty smart. It is really smart. Um, and you see evidence of this influence because at first the Abbey was really opposed to Delilah's uh, being the empress. They didn't think she was legitimate, and so they voiced their opposition to her reign. But now, all of a sudden, the sisters of the Oracular Order are saying, well, maybe Delilah's not so bad. Maybe we can uh, accept her as a legitimate empress. <laughs> so you're like, yeah. wait a minute, the Abbey reversing its position on something? <laughs> what? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and actually, Vice Overseer Liam Byrne, who will, who will encounter later, he, he starts to suspect that something is wrong with the sisters because of this. Uh, but he's afraid to speak out because he's afraid his rivals in the Abbey will capitalize on it and make him look like a heretic or whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so something's wrong with the Sisters of the Oracular Order, and it's because Ashworth's been using this device to influence them. And I, I, hope, I hope the way it works made sense the way I explained it. It's basically, the, the corpses of the sisters are ways to directly influence the minds of the living sisters by channeling void energy through these special lenses. Um, so that winds up being the key to the non-lethal resolution. Um, but anyway, so that's Ashworth in a nutshell, and that's the Oraculum. And so what's your, what's your objective is you, you, Ashworth is the curator of the Royal Conservatory, which is basically a museum of natural history and science and other things in Karnaka. So your objective is to go there, take her out, and destroy the Oraculum, pretty much. And so you, you go into the conservatory and you do those things. Of course, you can kill her, which is always an option. Or you could do something else, which I think is a lot more satisfying, the non-lethal option. And I, I want to say this is the canon version, but I can't point to any definitive evidence for that right off the top of my head. But I think this is the canon version, the non-lethal option. Okay. What, you, what you can do is instead of killing her, you can sever her connection to the void and strip her of her supernatural powers. Which later, if you do it, you find out that means Delilah cuts off all contact with her, doesn't want anything to, 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 to do with her anymore. Right. Delilah says it's because, oh, I just can't bear to see her in such a sorry state. But really, I think it's, well, she's not useful to me anymore without her power, so forget her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <know>? yeah. <laughs> now, the two were close, and some speculate that they even had a romantic relationship, but mm -hmm. I, 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 I don't know. I'm not convinced of that, but it could be. Well, it wouldn't surprise me, because Delilah's good at using people. She is. I mean, so. the... The way, if you find, like, little notes that she leaves, anytime she talks to any member of her coven, it's, it's almost got, like, a romantic tone to it. It's like, my love for you only grows, dear sister, da da da, da you know, it's like she's... Maybe she's, she was dating everyone. 
She might have been. <laughs> she she might have been a player. <laughs> but um, yeah, she's she's good at manipulating people, and I think that's part of what it, you know what it was all about. Now, if you kill Ashworth, Delilah will talk about wanting to avenge her, and in the final fight with Delilah at the end of the game, she'll talk about how she's avenging Ashworth's death. No. But if you take Ashworth's powers away, Delilah's basically like, "Yeah, I'm not going to have anything to do with her anymore." Aww. <laughs> so that lends me to believe that Delilah has some affection for Ashworth, but is basically using her. Yeah. And the way you strip her of her powers is you find a note that indicates that, you know, it, as we said, the the Araculum relies on these special optical lenses to channel the energies of the void into these corpses and in turn into the sisters to influence their prophecies. Uh, but the first batch of lenses that she and Jindosh made for the machine were flawed. So much so that when she tried to use them, it very nearly severed her connection to the void and took away her power. And so she's like, oh man, we can't use these lenses anymore. I'm going to keep them in my office for a little while, and then I'm going to throw them away. <laughs> it's like, if these are so dangerous to you, why would you keep them? Why wouldn't you just get rid of them? <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think, I guess she wanted to, I think the note implies she wants to study them or something. Maybe to figure out what the flaw was, but you know, it winds up being her undoing. So it's like, why don't you just get rid of them? But anyway, and so once you have to, once you find this note and figure out how to do the non-lethal option, you'll find these flawed lenses. Go to the machine, switch them out, uh, render Brianna Ashworth unconscious, bring her over to the machine, maybe do a few other things, and then turn the machine on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then once that happens, you'll see this big spectacular visual display, and then she will have lost her supernatural powers. At which point, she won't be hostile to you unless you attack her. She'll just sit there on her knees with her arms folded up. Just leave me be. Just leave me be. <laughs> so you, you've, you've taken her powers away. You've severed her connection to Delilah. Because um, all the witches get their powers from Delilah. Because Delilah has the ability to give her powers to other people. Kind of like Dowd does. Um, so once you sever her connection to the Void, she has no more powers. And then she's just a broken, miserable wretch. So, so that's how we get rid of... Brianna Ashworth in the non-lethal option. And of course, we have to render the oraculum non-functional so that Delilah can no longer influence the sisters of the oracular order. Now, if you play your cards right, you can actually listen to the sisters as they're prophesying using the oraculum um, to kind of eavesdrop on them. And they say some interesting things. Um, they, actually, they actually predict some of the things that are going to happen later in the game. Like when you do the final mission. Like, they'll predict that the overseers will attack Delilah and be defeated and stuff like that. So it's really interesting. So they're actually di- they're actually divining the future. Uh, which, again, seems like an occult practice. <laughs> but whatever. So yeah, that's, that's the mission, uh, the Royal Conservatory. And so now we come to our next mission, which is the Dust District. We're getting yeah. there, man. <laughs> There's a lot to talk about in this game. But yeah, we're it's, there. it's super long and convoluted. This is like the short version. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, what you're, trust me, what you're getting is the. This is probably going to be the the longest dishonored podcast we've done. Yeah. But this is the this is the Cliff Notes version. Yeah. I'm telling you, this. Is a, I have to take notes while we're talking, so <laughs> to keep track. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I guess when I was preparing for this, I made pages and pages of notes. Oh they, my god! Yeah, I prepared for it by taking a very long nap and not playing Dishonored two for about four months. Well, hey, it's cool. That's that's <laughs> that's that's brilliant strategy right there. Yeah, it's more preparation than I do for the Richie podcast. So <laughs> we just kind of show up and be like, "Okay, Richie, talk." Yeah, let's go, Richie, talk. <laughs> hey, Richie. <Yeah. laughs> oh no, you cut out again.
Is this Reach a Sabotaging? Oh, and you're back. Sinclair, are you listening to me? <laughs> now I am. But <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, um, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I've, I've got pages of notes, so I, I don't have to send those to you, but if you'd like them, I'm happy to. Because uh, I usually, with these podcasts, I'll just like look at the wiki and kind of hold it all in my head and talk about it. But mm-hmm. with this game, there's no way. <laughs> there's just too much. So anyway, we're, we're, we're over the hump now, though. <laughs> yeah. And we're coming to the Dust District. And the reason it's called the Dust District is quite literally because it's really, really dusty. It's like the, the Duke is so aggressively mining the silver in the silver mine. And the place is so windy that whenever it comes a good wind, it'll kick up so much dust that if you're outside, you can't see five feet in front of your face. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of annoying, but it really lends a lot of atmosphere to the milieu, you know. Um, it kicks up these hellacious windstorms and dust storms, and you can't see a thing. So it's aptly named the Dust District. And the Dust District has basically been cordoned off by the Grand Guard. And the reason for that is, as we mentioned earlier, the Howlers are basically at war with the Overseers. And so this mission takes place in the Dust District. That's why it's called the Dust District. The reason we're in the Dust District is that we come to learn that Delilah was involved in a very mysterious ritual that took place at the home of Aramis Stilton, who, as we mentioned, used to own the silver mine, but then went crazy. Um, and since has been cooped up in his own mansion. Um, our objective then is to get inside Aramis Stilton's mansion where the ritual took place and learn the nature of the ritual and what happened. Because by doing so, we hope to discover the secret to Delilah's immortality and be able to kill her. Because remember, Corvo drove his blade through her heart and it didn't phase her. She's immortal. And so we want to discover the secret to her immortality and find a way to kill her because right now we don't know there's a non-lethal solution to that one too but we'll get to that because <laughs> <laughs> there's always a non-lethal solution yeah uh, so but the entrance to aramis stilton's mansion is protected by a lock and it's not the standard lock where you kind of search around and find a three-digit combination and plug it in and get inside the mansion uh, no it's a very difficult very complicated logic grid puzzle um, it's the same type of puzzle, incidentally, that uh, they give you on the law school admission test here in the United States. It's a logic puzzle. <laughs> Only it's a lot harder than anything you'll come across on the law school admission test. Very, very complex. It's like there, there are basically four ways to find the solution. Number one is you can stand there and read the clue and puzzle through it until you, event- until you eventually solve it yourself. Mm-hmm. Or you can look it up online. <laughs> I guess if you want to. <laughs> Uh, As usual. I think, like, <laughs> the the codes to the safe will change, as mm-hmm. we discussed before, to make it harder for you to look it up online. Yeah. But I think this puzzle is, I th- the best I can tell, this puzzle is fixed. Okay. Um, th- that may not be the case. There may be, like, two or three different versions of it. But I, the best I can tell, it's pr- everywhere I see it discussed online, it, it appears to be the same. So I've concluded that it's fixed, but it, it may not be. Um, and there's, and if, if you want to platinum the game, you're going to have to solve it yourself without finding any clues to the solution in the area. Because there's an achievement for that. <laughs> Just incidentally. <Yeah. laughs> um, so there's four ways to get past it. One is to solve it yourself. Uh, another one is to get either the overseers or the howlers to help you. Because they both have the solution. Um, the howlers have it because uh, the Duke has actually hired them to see to Stilton's needs while he's cloistered 
in the mansion babbling to himself incoherently. Uh, so they have the key because they've they've been tasked with supplying his needs. Why the Duke is employing the Howlers for anything, a criminal gang, I don't know. Uh, but for some reason, they he's employed the Howlers to come and go from the manor and see to Stilton's needs. Because Stilton was a friend of the Duke's father, who was the Duke before him. And so out of lingering loyalty, I guess he's taking care of Stilton, even though Stilton's gone crazy and can't help him. So that's... and. Or you can get the overseers to give it to you. Somehow the overseers also have the code to get into Stilton's Manor. Um, but of course, neither side will give you the solution. I keep saying code, but it's really the solution to the puzzle. Unless you do them a favor. Basically, it's... If you want the overseers to give you the code, or rather the solution, you'll have to kill Paolo and bring his body to the overseer outpost. If you want the howlers to give you the solution, you'll have to kill Vice Overseer Burn, who's in charge of the area. And bring his body to Paolo. <laughs> and if you do that, and there's an achievement for siding with one or the other. And so to platinum the game, you'll have to side with both in different playthroughs, or each in a different playthrough. Um, but there's a third way. As you're exploring the Howler's territory, you come to find out that uh, there's an apartment owned by a person named Durante. And you find a note nearby from Paolo instructing someone to find... Durante is basically dead because the overseers have captured him and the overseers prisoners tend not to live too long <laughs> you know yeah so like he would say he was nabbed by some of the abbey's boys and so paolo has left instructions to find a way into durante's apartment without blowing anything up because inside durante's apartment is the solution to the jindosh luck but the key to get into the apartment is in the Overseer Outpost. Now, if you go into the Overseer Outpost without Paolo's body, they'll be hostile to you. And if you go into Howler territory without Vice Overseer Baron's body, the Howlers will be hostile to you. <laughs> so, you can find the solution without helping either the Howlers or the Overseers, but that, in that requires you to go into each faction's territory, and they'll both be hostile to you. So, that's fun. If you want to do it that way. Yeah. But there's also a way that you can... One of the options that you have in the mission is to dispose of Paolo. Regardless how you get the solution. You can dispose of Paolo. You can dispose of Vice Overseer Burn. Or you can dispose of both. And you can do that lethally or non-lethally. And what you do here will have an impact on the ending of the game. Like, once you finish the game, the outsider will explain the political ramifications of your decisions. And if you leave either Paolo or the Vice Overseer alive, but not both, or I, should, I say alive, if you don't, if you incapacitate one but not the other, then the faction whose leader you leave intact will basically kind of take over Karnaka. <laughs> the, uh, you know, if it's the if you leave the Vice Overseer alive but get rid of Paolo, then. The Outsider will remark how the Abbey will be able to enforce unrestrained righteousness across Karnaka. Uh, you know, because they basically take over all of Karnaka. So whoever you leave standing, having gotten rid of the other one, will have tremendous influence in Karnaka once the events of the game are over. If you take both out, then neither one will have much influence. If you leave both intact, then both of them will have a presence in Karnaka, but neither one will have absolute dominion, you know. They'll sort of learn to they'll sort of learn to coexist if you leave both in place, you know. Um, 
And there, if you decide, though, that you want to eliminate Paolo or the vice overseer, again, there's a lethal and a non-lethal way to do it. You can kill them, but you can also have them shipped off to work in, this, in the mines. Kind of similar to what you do in the DLC in the first Dishonored game with, uh, with the, the Wailing Baron. Yeah. It's like, um, because one of the, because Durante is a, was a, I think a lieutenant in the Howlers, kind of like Mindy Blanchard. And apparently it's a regular thing that Howlers members are sort of imprisoned and conscripted to work in the mines. And so Durante has an arrangement with the mining company. Um, for every drunk off the street that Durante can kidnap, nail up in a crate, and ship off to the mines, the mines will release a member of the Howlers gang. Yeah. In this case, Durante is trying to, or was trying to negotiate for the release of two of his guys. I think their names are Pablo and Bill. I, I, I may be getting that wrong. Uh, it's like Pablo and Bill. I, I, I recall one, one name was very similar to Paolo. I said, trying not to get them confused, you know. <laughs> so it's like Pablo or Polo and Bill, or something like that. Or mm-hmm. I think that's the name, but I could be mistaken. And so you find a note from the mining company that says, I'll release your two men basically once we receive two replacements. As usual, find two drunks, put them in these two crates, nail them <laughs> shut, and ship them off to us. <laughs> and so that's a clue that if you want to get rid of both Paolo and the vice overseer, non-lethally, yeah. you can render both of them unconscious, bring them to these crates, nail the crates shut, and they'll be shipped off to the mines to work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Again, a much better fate than death. Uh, Ugh, yeah. There to go with Dishonored being nice again. <laughs> yep, yep. So you can do that. Uh, I actually, actually had, I actually opened up the game to read those notes this morning because when I woke up this morning, I realized I was unclear on exactly how the non-lethal solution works. So I went back through the lore notes that I had in the game and, and you know, figured it out. Yeah. When I woke up this morning, my boyfriend was like, aren't you recording with Nick today? And I'm like, oh, crap, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> True professionals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's me most days. Oh, crap, I've got this going on today. Holy cow. <laughs> oh, crap, I'm a lawyer. Yeah. Oh, crap, I'm, a, I'm alive. <laughs> but, yeah. So, anyway, however you do it, you get into the manor. And, and, and once you, you know, input the solution to the lock, I think that's the end of this mission, pretty much. Um, and so you've... Okay, and then... The next mission will pick up right after. You won't go back to the boat or anything. Um, interestingly, though, during the Dust District mission, one of the interesting side things you can do is to explore Corvo's childhood home. And there's a special action for that at the end of the mission. So I thought that was neat. I mean, it doesn't have really any real big significance to the lore, but it's kind of neat, you know. So anyway, then once you get to Aramis Stilton's Manor, the next mission is called A Crack in the Slab. And this is a fun one. A really fun one. Um, I think this level actually took some inspiration from something in Bioshock 2. I forget, the Persephone something or other. I forget the name of it. But it's like it took a lot of inspiration from one of the missions in Bioshock. I think it was Bioshock 2. And the title had something to do with Persephone, but it, it, it escapes me at the moment. I know you're a Bioshock fan, so I'm sorry. I can't remember what the, <laughs> what the mission title is. But Yeah, me neither. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and so but once, you get in, once you get onto the premises of Aramis Stilton's manor, uh, you find that reality is distorted. Yeah. Um, you don't have access to all of your abilities. Basically, you can, once, 
If you accept the outsider's powers, you can invest runes in one of two general types of abilities. The first are powers. And those are things like, you know, shadow walk and blink and, you know, the obviously supernatural things you can do. Mm-hmm. And the other are called enhancements. And these are basically passive enhancements to your physical abilities. Like this is like additional health or the ability to jump higher or whatever. Powers do not work in the manner, but enhancements do. So what usually happens is by the time I get here, I haven't invested in agility, which lets you jump higher. But then I realize, oh, I can't use blink or I can't use far reach. And there are some high places I want to get to. So let me spend a couple runes on agility so I can jump higher. <laughs> And get to these places, because your powers don't work, but the enhancements do, which is kind of weird. And the reason that reality is distorted is because of the ritual that took place three years ago. Shortly after you get inside, you you find that Stilton is still alive. He's there babbling to himself. He's lost his mind. Mm -hmm. Um, And you also learn at some point that Megan slash Billy was really good friends with him. And shortly after the ritual took place, he disappeared, and she went looking for him. And she... And in so doing, she came across some members of the Grand Guard, and she escaped with her life, but it cost her an eye and an arm. And that's a hint as to how you can prevent her from losing her eye and her arm, uh, but you don't know, because you can time travel in this mission. Yeah. Yeah. Shortly after you get there, the outsider will appear to you and basically explain that because due to the ritual that took place some years ago, uh, three years ago, reality is distorted and so you can't use your powers. But it's okay, because I'm going to give you this handy-dandy device called a timepiece. Yeah. And the timepiece allows you to travel back and forth between present day and that fateful night three years ago. But it's weird because it's like, let's say you go back to the past. And in the, in the past, it's 12.05. Then you, you come back to the present for five minutes, and then you go back to the past. It's going to be 12.10 in the past. Because time keeps moving forward in the past as you go back and forth from the past to the present. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can go... But you can go from the present to the past with this device. Basically, it will. And it's a really interesting way to get through. Because your basic objective is to get to Aramis Stilton's study where the ritual took place. Um, and there are multiple ways to do that. The most obvious way is that you come to find out that Stilton is in the backyard. This is before he went insane. Um, Stilton is in the backyard. And he's got his notebook on his person. And his notebook contains the code that you need to open the door to his study. Now, you can get to his study without the code, and if you do, I think it, it either unlocks a special achievement or a special action in the game. You can do it. And I actually managed to do it the last time I played through without oh, getting nice. the code. Yeah. So I was very happy. Anyway, I kind of stumbled on it by accident, but I managed to do it. So, <laughs> so yeah. But, you know, the, the straightforward way is to find Aramis Stilton in the backyard and get his code. Now, in the present day, the mansion is all decrepit and things have fallen in. And so the layout is different in the present from what it is in the past. Right. So one of the, the means to progress through the mansion is you know, if your way is blocked in the present, if you go back to the past, maybe it's not blocked and vice versa. Right. Because <laughs> like in the present, sometimes doors will be missing. And in the past, it's a locked door. So you have to kind of go back and forth to explore the whole area. And uh, so it's really interesting. And of course, guards are patrolling in the past. Guards are patrolling the mansion. And so you have to watch out for them or kill them or whatever you do. Um, So as you make your way through the mansion, you you find all these cool things. Um, You come to learn that the reason that Aramis Stilton went insane is because he participated in the ritual. And what he saw was and what he saw broke his mind pretty much. So he went crazy. And so that's, he went crazy, he went missing because the Duke had him cloistered up inside the mansion. Mm-hmm. 
And so Megan went looking for him and had, or Billy went looking for him, had the encounter with the guards, lost her eye uh-huh. and her arm. And so what you can do to prevent this is you can either kill or incapacitate Stilton in the backyard before you go into the study. Because <laughs> he'll be there. Yeah. And he'll have guards with him. And if he sees you, he'll attack you because you're breaking into his home. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Obviously, yeah. <laughs> and for just and so wait, I, I kind of got a little bit ahead of myself. The reason that they're having the ritual in his mansion is because the Duke basically asked him, say, hey, I've got some friends. We're going to hold a seance in your mansion. Are you okay with this? And yeah, of course, nothing because- sketchy, just a little Ouija board, little Halloween party. Don't worry about it. Yeah, no big deal, right? Just some, <laughs> just some spooky stuff. Yeah. And now, Stilton had reservations about this, but because it was the Duke, and because Stilton was close friends with the Duke's father, the former Duke, like, the current Duke's name is Luca. His father's name was Theodanus. So when I say Theodanus, I mean the Duke that preceded the current Duke. So Stilton was good friends with Theodanus. Now, of course, Theodanus' son, Luca, is an incompetent, uh, you know, derelict. <laughs> he's not stupid, but he's corrupt and, and uh, yeah. self-serving, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, out of loyalty to Duke Luca's father and just out of a desire to please the person who's in power right now, he says, sure, you can go ahead and have the seance in my manner. Then you'll find notes where Stilton is telling his staff, you know, get the best wine, get the best food, because the Duke's coming with his friends, you know. <laughs> but he has reservations about it. He's like, yeah. maybe I never should have allowed them to come in here. Yeah. But, and so the, the ritual is taking place in the study, which you, you make your way through the mansion, and you get to the backyard, and then the backyard is between you and the study. And so Stilton is in the backyard, and if you knock him out before you go in and observe the ritual, then when you get back to the present day, everything will change. The mansion will be in good shape. It'll have staff and servants and, you know, Stilton will not have gone insane. And and rather than the Duke running roughshod and working the miners to death and exploiting them, Stilton will still be actively running the mine and advocating on their behalf. <laughs> so conditions for the miners will improve because before Stilton went crazy. He treated his miners very well. He started as a miner and worked his way up to to be a mine baron, but he never forgot where he came from. He was always advocating for his workers and treating them well and giving them, you know, giving them time off and you know, medical care and all this other good stuff. And so he can so if you knock him out, he will not go in and see the ritual, hence he will not go insane. Yeah. And he'll still be running the mine in the present day. And because he doesn't go insane and disappear, Billy will not go looking for him, and hence she'll not lose her eye and her arm. It all comes together. It all comes together. Um, And you can also kill him in the past. Killing him will prevent Billy from losing her arm and her eye. But it won't do anything to help the miners or to help Karnaka, you know, in any way. (laughs) You know, the the mansion will still be abandoned. It won't be quite as decrepit, but it'll be abandoned. And it'll be owned by someone else, and you'll find a little note saying the person is going to sell it. You know, yeah. So pr- probably the best solution for Karnaka and for the miners is to knock Stilton out so that he doesn't yeah. go in and ob- observe the ritual. Yeah. But if you're, so. but if you're of a sadistic mind, you can just kill him, or <laughs> or you can just leave him alone. Because if you leave him alone, he'll go in, he'll watch the ritual, he'll go insane, and things will play out just exactly as they did. You know? <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. so whatever you yeah. decide to do. I think this whole level is, like, uh, my favorite level in the entire game. I think so, too. It's really interesting. Yeah, 
Yeah, and I liked going back and forth and like finding different ways to spoop the guards and then getting out of there and then going oh, back yeah, no. in. <laughs> it's like if the guards came after me, I could just warp back to the present. Yeah. And then they'd, they'd be like, what happened? And then another aspect is they. Like there's, there's this little there's this little folding flap on the timepiece. It yeah. works kind of like a switchblade. If you if you whip it out, you can actually if you're in the present, you can actually see what's happening in the past and vice yeah. versa. Mm-hmm. So it's like you can put yourself behind a guard and then materialize in the past and choke them out and then yeah. warp back out again to the present and go back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's like it's really cool. Yeah. Um, the guy, I think yeah, it's it's my favorite level in the game too. It, it's really neat where you can go back and forth and see what's happening at the same time and stuff. I wish there was more of that in the game. You know, it's like you have two really unique levels. One is like the Clockwork Mansion, mm-hmm. where you have to solve all these puzzles, and then the other one is this one where you go back and forth in time. Uh, apart from that, it's basically the same experience you get in Dishonored One, more mm-hmm. or less, yeah. except somewhat different gadgets and different powers, but it's more or less the same experience. Uh, but these two areas, though, are really unique. So I, I really agree with you on that one. Uh, it's really good, the way they pulled it off. And I, I read some of like the technical aspects of how they like they had to layer area one area map on top of another area map that it was kind of the same, but little, little differences, you know? <laughs> so it, it's really how they pulled it off technically is... Maybe that's why you don't get more of it, because it's, it's technically difficult to pull yeah. off. And may, maybe if they had more levels like that, there would be performance issues with the game. Who knows? <laughs> They'd be Bethesda. Oh! Yep. Well, you know, one of the things, when this game first came out, one of the things that really held back the sales of it were it had some significant performance issues when it first released. Uh, so sales flagged because of it. Aww. Um, now, they fixed the performance issues, and I think sales picked up after that. But because of the initial performance issues, it may never have quite lived up to the expectations. Because Now, it wound up selling a decent number of copies, maybe a little on the low side for like a AAA game, but it wound up selling okay. You know, it's not like it was a flop or anything, but it just it could have done better if they hadn't had the performance issues at the beginning. So anyway, maybe if if developers actually like to put out finished games someday, <laughs> maybe wouldn't have because you know release schedules are just getting ever it's so much tighter and tighter. They're churning these games out. And it's just, Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Bless you. Bless you. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, so finally you work your way through all this stuff and all this puzzling and all this going back and forth in time, and you get to the site of the ritual. And there are between four and five participants, depending on what you do with Stilton. Because if you don't do anything to him, he goes and participates in the ritual. Um, but there are several participants there. One is Jindosh. One is Brianna Ashworth. One is Duke Luca Abel, who has one of my favorite lines in the whole game when he's watching the ritual. He says, by the stars, this is more exciting than any orgy I've ever attended. <laughs> And, and the way he says it, too, is like, everybody goes to orgies. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, Stilton, if you didn't incapacitate him or kill him. Uh, interestingly, if you do knock him out, he's late to the ritual, and the Duke kind of grumbles, and it's just like, oh, let's start without him, you know. Like, where's Stilton? Blah, blah, blah. Let's just start without him. And then the final participant is Hypatia slash Grim Alex. I'm not sure which persona attended. I think it was Grim Alex who actually attended the ritual. Um, I think. Although Grim, the way the way the game presents Grim, Alex, it's like she's a more recent phenomenon, and this was three years ago. So it okay. it may have been Hypatia, but then again, elsewhere in the game, you find a photograph of the people who participated in the ritual, and clearly that the person in that picture is Grim, Alex, clearly because the, the the glowing yeah. eyes and stuff. Yeah. So I'm inclined to think that it's Grim, Alex, who yeah, attends the ritual here, and not Hypatia. 
judging by that picture and the fact that why would Hypatia attend a ritual like this, given what else we know about her and how she wants to help everybody and stuff. Yeah. So anyway, you come to find out that what has happened is when when Dowd either killed Delilah or trapped her in the void in the DLC all those mm-hmm. years ago, because mm-hmm. all, all this takes place 15 years after the first game, so yeah. it's been a while. After Dowd defeats Delilah, her spirit, you know, is lost in the void. And most people, when they die in this game, you know, they, you kind of fade into the cosmos, fade into the void, for the most part. Sometimes people stick around after death, but for the most part, you just kind of fade into the cosmos. Uh, or at least if you believe what the Abbey says about the afterlife, which, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> and in Death of the Outsider, you found out that quite a few people tend to stick around in the void after they die, including Dowd, but we'll get to that in another podcast. Um, so Delilah's spirit is lost in the void. Mm-hmm. And she happens to come across that place in the void where the outsider was made the outsider. Mm-hmm. Um, because the outsider wasn't always the outsider. 4,000 years ago, he was just a normal human being. He was a poor boy, basically homeless in some destitute and rough part of some ancient city. And basically, these cultists got together and performed this ritual on him that turned him into the outsider. And the place where they did that was a place where the void kind of intersects with our world. So the ritual basically took place in the void. And so Delilah found that place in the void where the outsider was made the outsider. And by sheer force of will, she held on to that place and stayed in the void and got stronger and stronger and stronger until she was strong enough to reach out beyond the void and contact the Duke and Brianna Ashworth and all these other people and explain to them just how to perform the ritual that would bring her physical body back from the void. And bring her back to life. And so that's what the point of the ritual was. To bring Delilah back into the physical world from the void. So, from sheer force of will, she comes back from the dead. I think that's pretty impressive. Yeah, (laughs) I agree. (laughs) She's persistent. She really wants her revenge. Yeah, buddy. Do not mess with Delilah. (laughs) No. Her cunning and force of will are renowned. And I think for good reason. She's basically the Putin of Dishonored. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) <laughs> don't mess with me or you're liable to die of radiation poisoning because <laughs> i'm putin i poison people uh, oh I'm, I'm i'm sorry president putin i didn't mean to say that i wasn't talking about you I was... don't kill us glorious leader <laughs> <laughs> glorious. yeah and sin and nick have never been heard from again <laughs> <laughs> pretty much this is the end yeah <laughs> you could put a big r.i.p thing up on the screen like... yeah <laughs> or maybe our faces on a milk carton. Have you seen these two? <laughs> Have you seen Sin and Nick? <laughs> me- me- meanwhile, Richard's like, well, there goes the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm free. <laughs> but yeah, so when you see the ritual, and basically it's, you know, they get together and go by the stars and all this stuff, and they and they finally pull Delilah out of the void, and she appears in the room. Mm-hmm. But when you get there, there and watch the ritual, it's weird because it's like, Past and present are happening simultaneously. Yeah. It's like it's really weird. So you can't use your timepiece because you're in the past and you're in the present at the same mm-hmm. time. And it's it's really creepy to watch. It's like Delilah comes out of this this distortion in this in the fabric of reality. It looks like you know. Yeah. And she just comes out of there, and you know, I think one of the participants reaches in and helps. Her, it helps pull her out. And then when she arrives, you find out that there's this big effigy made of this big scary looking effigy made of bone and other things. And the first thing, practically the first thing Delilah does is to take her spirit, or at least a part of her spirit, out of her body 
and place it in this effigy. Yeah. And it's kind of like Voldemort in Harry Potter, you know, the way he, the way Voldemort kind of tears off pieces of his soul and hides them in objects. And as long as at least one piece of his soul is in one of these physical objects, he can't really be killed. Like he, he can be killed, but he'll come back. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of the same principle that's at work with Harry Potter and the Horcruxes, right? As long as Delilah has this piece of her spirit inside this effigy, she cannot be killed. That's why Corvo couldn't kill her, even though he stabbed her through the heart with his blade. And so you learn then that the only way to make Delilah mortal again is to find this effigy, put Delilah's spirit in the heart, get the heart back to her, and put her spirit back into her body. Um, but the trick is that the effigy is now securely locked away in Duke Luca Abel's private vault in the Grand Palace of Sircon. So guess what you have to do? <laughs> what do we have to do? <laughs> you, you have to infiltrate the Grand Palace, find the effigy, put Delilah's <laughs> spirit in the heart, and, just for fun, kill or depose the Duke. <laughs> <laughs> so that brings us to our next mission. <laughs> And of course, if you, again, if you knock Stilton out and you get back to the boat and you see Billy Lurk, Megan, with her eye and her arm intact, you're like, oh, I did a good thing. Mm-hmm. You know, so Billy Lurk, because I think that's the canon, because if you watch Death of the Outsider, or if you play Death of the Outsider, at least for the first part of the game, Billy actually has her eye and her hand. Uh, she keeps dreaming about losing them, and then weird stuff happens. <laughs> After that, yeah. <laughs> but, but that's the canon: is that you actually do change history, and Billy keeps her keeps her arm in her eye. Oh, excuse me, Megan. Sorry, we haven't got to the big. <laughs> All right, the big reveal isn't here yet. <laughs> we haven't got to the big reveal yet. <laughs> totally not. Uh, totally not, Billy. Nope, nope, nope. Sorry, I don't know who this Billy girl is. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about we're talking about <laughs> Megan Foster. Yeah. And, oh shoot! I forgot to mention Megan slash Billy actually has a connection to the Duke. What is um, it? Well, way back when Megan was a child, uh, she had a relationship with someone named Deirdre. Mm-hmm. You know, they were very close. Mm-hmm. But the Duke, even as a young boy, was a, a real big fat jerk. Um, the Duke had a brother, and the brother's name was, shoot, it starts with an R. I think it was Redanus, something like that. Mm-hmm. And the Duke basically goaded his brother into attacking Deirdre. And the attack was fatal, which, you know, is unfortunate. So Deirdre was killed, and Billy happened to be nearby, and Billy flew into a rage when this happened. And she grabbed, like, this little statuette of a gazelle and plunged it deep into the Duke's brother's eye. Yeah. Of course, the Duke wasn't the Duke at the time. Young Luca. Uh, Plunged it into young Luca's brother's eye and killed him. And in the process, broke the statue. And, of course, Billy had to flee right away because he just murdered the son of the current Duke and the brother of the future Duke right in front of him. Oh, yeah. So she had to get the heck up out of there. So most of, Billy, most of Billy's life, she's been a fugitive mm-hmm. and a killer. <laughs> but yeah. Of course, you can kind of understand it in this case because oh, you know, yeah. someone, someone dear to her had just been murdered. So yeah. You can kind of see why she might fly into a rage. Uh, w- would it hold up in Dishonored Court? Actually, honestly, no, I don't think so, because the trial would probably take place in... in because at the time, Duke Theodanus Abel was in power. And that was his son she killed. Mm-hmm. So, I doubt, in, as a practical matter, I doubt any defense would hold up. Um, but now, in real life, though, if you're charged with murder, there's a lesser offense called voluntary manslaughter. And if you can prove that 
the killing was the result of what's called a legally adequate provocation. Or in some states, that it was the result of a serious mental or emotional disturbance. Then you you won't get off scot-free. But the conviction will not be for murder. It will be the lesser offense of voluntary manslaughter. Okay. So if the Duke's brother killing Deirdre was legally adequate provocation, then Billy, instead of being convicted of murder, will be convicted of the much, much lesser offense of voluntary manslaughter. Mm -hmm. So it's the difference between possible death penalty and life imprisonment to like maybe six or seven years. Uh So it's still a serious offense, but you're, you're being afforded some leniency because... The reason you committed the killing is kind of sympathetic, you okay. know. So maybe voluntary manslaughter would apply and she would get a reduced sentence because of it, you know. Convicted of a lesser offense than murder. So yeah, we're learning law. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so maybe. Of course, like I said, because it was the then acting Duke's son, I doubt that uh, they'd probably shoot her on sight. Oh <laughs> yeah. You know, as a practical matter. But anyway, so Billy's on the run even from a young age. So, yeah, then your next mission is to infiltrate the Grand Palace. And basically, your objective is to kill or depose the Duke, define the effigy, and capture Delilah's spirit. Those are your two objectives. And getting, getting to the vault is really fun. There's a lot of guards. There's a lot of obstacles. It's, it's a really comp- complex area to kind of get through. Um, maybe the best way to get there is through, like, in the kitchen, there's this pantry with a secret passage. You can kind of figure out how to get in there and mm-hmm. do your thing. And then... The palace is surrounded by water, so there's this, like, repository of underwater items you can swim down and get a bunch of items. I missed this, and I think I missed, like, half the coins in the game because of it, because there's so much uh-huh. in there. The last time I played through the game, I missed it. Um, and I, at the end of the mission, it told me how many of the coins I had gotten, and the total, I think, <laughs> wasn't very big. And I'm like, where are all the coins? And then I learned, oh, there's this, there's this underwater room you can swim to, and there's a bunch of good items in it. So Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so... You, you get to the vault, however you do it, you get past all the guards and all the security devices, because there are arc pylons, there are you know, walls of light, there are all this stuff. Mm-hmm. You get past all of that, you get to the effigy, and then you hold the heart out to it. And of course, there's not room in the, there's not room in the heart for two spirits. So for Delilah's spirit to get into the heart, Jessamine's spirit has to leave. And so it's kind of a sad moment, because it, you know, if, if you're Corvo, this was your girlfriend, and if you're Emily, this was your mother. Mm-hmm. Clearly, this is what Jessamine wants. She wants to be released into the cosmos, you know, so that she doesn't have to stick in that the cage of dead flesh, as she calls it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, once you get to the effigy, Jessamine's spirit will appear to you one last time. And what she says to you will depend on your chaos level. So, like, if you're Corvo, if you're Corvo and you're playing on high chaos, it's actually pretty cold. She looks at you and she says, Corvo, I no longer care where you go or what Aww. you do. <laughs> Like, I don't care about you anymore. Just let me go. Oh, she's breaking up with you. (laughs) Basically, yeah. I think on low chaos, she might, it's a lot nicer. You know, she'll talk about, you know, she'll speak much more flatteringly of you. If you're you're Emily and you're on high chaos, she'll look at you and she'll say, Oh, daughter, you are becoming everything I fought against. Aww. And Emily says, but I did it for you, your throne, your legacy. Oh, dear daughter, you are becoming everything I fought against. I love you, but let me go. That's it. I love you, but you suck. (laughs) Pretty much. So, so Jessamine does not approve of all the killing in High Chaos. No, I think that's the point. So, whatever she says, you you have you have your last interaction with her. She disappears into the void or wherever, and then you point the heart at the effigy and 
it's kind of theatrical. The heart essentially sucks Delilah's black spirit. It, mm-hmm. it, it's black. It's dark, yeah. you know. So she sucks her black dark spirit out of the effigy and into the heart. And from that point on, whenever you talk to the heart, it's Delilah talking to you and not Jessamy. So it's like kind of creepy because you've got Delilah in your pocket. <laughs> and that's and around that time you learn that Delilah's not sleeping well because her spirit longs to return to her body, right? Because that's where it belongs. Yeah. So her spirit is calling out to her in her sleep, and she's not sleeping well. Um, I think some part of Delilah really wants her spirit to return to her body, because that's where it belongs. Yeah, and the entire time the Delilah heart is talking crap to you, she's like, by the way, you'll never truly know if Emily is yours. Yeah. I was like, oh my god, shut up! <laughs> oh yeah, she, every time you, yeah, she talks smack to you the whole time. It's like if you're on high chaos, she's like, "Did you really think Jessamine would approve of what you're doing? You know, or do you really think you can? She, do you really think you can defeat me? You'll never know how close I came to, you know, taking over your body and ruling th- through you as mm-hmm. Empress so long ago. And, yeah. you know, so she just talks smack the whole time. Yeah. Um, and then really interestingly, she confirms that Dowd is still alive. Mm-hmm. Um, because, of course, as we know, the canon is that Corvo spares Dowd in the first game because Dowd yeah. shows up in later media, you know. And so, but Delilah kind of, compl- Delilah the spirit kind of complains that Dowd is still alive because he's, you know, he's the one who defeated her the first time. You know, the, that cursed Dowd who breathes still. <laughs> Dang him, you know. How dare he. And so that's, of course, that's the first part of the mission. You get mm-hmm. Delilah's spirit in the heart. And the next part is to kill or depose the Duke. Oh, snap. Yeah, no, finally we get to (laughs) make the Duke pay for all the corrupt and self-serving things that he has done. Yes. Um, Of course, there are two ways to do it. The non-lethal way and the lethal way. The lethal way involves just killing him, but there's a trick here. There's a catch, because you come to learn that the Duke has a body double. Someone who looks just like him. And the purpose of that is to confuse potential assassins. Like us. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so part of the trick to eliminating the Duke... Is, now, of course, you could just kill both the Duke and the body double and not worry about it. Uh, that's one way to do it. Yeah. Matter of fact, uh, there's a Clint Eastwood movie I saw a long time ago, and Clint Eastwood was tasked to kill one guy among three, but he wasn't sure which of the three it was, so he just killed all three of them. <laughs> <laughs> what a brilliant strategist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and in in the uh, Lady Boyle's last party in the first game, if you don't want to go to the trouble of figuring out which of the three is Lady Boyle... You just kill everyone at the party. Yeah, you just kill all three. (laughs) And that will accomplish the mission. Yeah, there you go. Um, So you can kill both the Duke and the Double and not worry about which one's which, if you like. But to to do the non-lethal ending, you're going to have to really figure out which one is the Double and which one is the Duke. And of course, there are all sorts of clues to to help you distinguish between the two. Like, for example, the body double, whose name is Armando, kind of a perfect name for Michael Buffer to announce, uh, in this corner, Armando Abel, <laughs> you, know? Uh, you know. But yeah, his name is Armando, and he's a smoker, but the real Duke is not a smoker. Yeah, the real Duke vapes. <laughs> he vapes, he doesn't smoke. He uses those little e-cigs. <laughs> yeah, and of course, restaurant the pe- places have taken to banning the, the vapes as well as the cigarettes, so it doesn't really help anymore but, uh, yeah the duke uh, the duke does not smoke but the double does and so mm-hmm. if you kind of like hide and observe him for a little while if you see him smoke then that's a sure sign that's the double and not mm-hmm. the duke yeah. and there are other ways too to tell kind of subtle ways like how they behave if you destroy something or kill somebody 
uh, is another way. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the body double has his own living quarters in the palace, and the duke has his separate living quarters. Mm-hmm. You know, so there are all sorts of ways to tell. Um, so you can kill both and not worry about it. You can get lucky and kill the duke, and then you'll get credit for accomplishing the mission. Mm-hmm. Um, but to, to get the non-lethal resolution, then you're going to have to figure out who the double is and go talk to him. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so what he'll say is that, you know, he's been impersonating the Duke for a long time. He's gotten really good at it. And so what you'll propose is that we essentially replace the Duke with the double. Yeah. And have the double act as Duke in the Duke's place. And so you ask him, hey, do you think you could pull this off? And he laughs and says, ha, I've spent years impersonating that a-hole. <laughs> so he, he can, he's got the art of impersonating the Duke down to a science. So he can do it. But there's a catch, of course. Uh-oh. Because before anyone believes that the double is the Duke, they're going to expect to see a certain medallion. Yes. That the real Duke keeps on his person at all times. And so what you have to do is you have to either pickpocket the Duke or render him unconscious, get that medallion. And once you have that, the du- the the plan will be in motion, and the double and Armando will tell you, "Okay, cool. What I need you to do now is render the duke unconscious, bring him here, and what we'll do is we'll tell the guards that the duke is the body double, and that he's finally he finally he's finally gone crazy. He spent so long he spent so long pretending to be me that he now thinks he's me. And so, what do we do with such a person? What we usually do with people: send them to the mines." <laughs> I feel like that's the solution of the game for everything. Oh, what do we do with them? Send them to the mines. Well, in this case, it's even better. What they wind up doing is they send him to a mental institution, an asylum. <laughs> oh. Where he's locked up for the rest of his days. <laughs> the asylum is located in the mine. You know what? I bet it is. <laughs> you know what? These people who are locked up in the asylum, they're, they're sitting around. They're not contributing anything. So let's just send them to the mines. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So the plan is basically to make people think that the double is the duke and to, and to make people think that the duke is the double who's gone crazy and now thinks he is the duke. So we'll tell everybody that this is the double and he's pretended to be the duke so long that he actually thinks he's the duke. <laughs> and so if you get the medallion, then it actually works. You render the duke unconscious, you put him on the bed like the double tells you to. And then the, the grand guard comes. It's like, you know, when I played through this, I think I killed every guard in the house, but somehow there were two or three more guards to come and arrest the duke. <laughs> And so the double has the medallion. He can now pretend to be the Duke. And he points to the guards and he says, arrest this fellow. He's pretended to be, to be me for so long, he now thinks he's me. And of course, the real, the real Duke is beside himself. He's like, what? You can't do this. I'll have all of you strung up and executed. This is crazy. You can't do this to me. I'm the Duke. Or Not his exact words, but something to that effect. And now, interestingly, what happens here depends on your chaos level. If it's low chaos, then the double, who is now acting as the duke, will tell the guards to be nice to the duke, right? Treat him, gent- treat him gently. If, if you're on high chaos, Armando will instruct the guards to cut out the duke's tongue. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cutting yeah. off the tongue is another dishonored signature move. Yep, yep. <laughs> well, it's like, in, it's like in Dark Souls 3, you cut out the pale tongues. Oh <laughs> god, yeah. <laughs> when you invade someone and offer them to Rosaria. But, uh, you know, that's it, that's it. Armando is in Rosaria's fingers, and he's cutting out tongues to offer to Rosaria. Oh my god, that's how he looks so much like the Duke in the first place. Exactly. He, he offered up tongues to Rosaria to make him look like the Duke. Yeah. Because <laughs> she could change your appearance. Confirmed. <laughs> 
Dishonored and Dark Souls take place in the same universe. Confirmed. <laughs> we should we should legit have a podcast on that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Connecting Dishonored to the Souls series, how they're all in the same universe. There are some like very subtle similarities in some things. Like like Emily's outfit looks like it could be a hunter's outfit in Bloodborne. Yeah. I think. Because like she's got the coat and she's got the pants, you know, and she's got the layers of clothing to provide protection and she's got the mask, you know. The thumbnail will set Dishonored predicting Bloodborne 2. That's right. <laughs> Never mind Deracinate predicting Bloodborne 2. <laughs> Vati V has actually got some videos where he actually thinks that uh, Deracinate is predicting Bloodborne 2, or at least he, he wouldn't be surprised if it was. Yeah, but Miyazaki recently said that it's not. <laughs> <laughs> well, never mind what he says. <laughs> yeah, what does he know? Is he a lore hunter? Is Miyazaki a certified lore hunter? No, he's not. He's just a creator. What does he know? Does he have a YouTube channel with 3,000 subscribers? I don't think so. I don't think so. Nope. Nope. Yeah. Nope. He's just the president of From Software and the director of all the games. So. You know, I think he made a wise decision of stepping away from Dark Souls 2 to work on Bloodborne. But that's... <laughs> I like Dark Souls 2, but I think Bloodborne was a better use of his time. It, it oh, gives I a superb agree. game. Yeah. You know. Oh yeah! And by the way, by the way, the podcast on the development of Dark Souls Two, good stuff. I really enjoyed that. Oh, <laughs> awesome! Thank y'all. I really liked it. Uh, it. It came out okay, considering they switched directors halfway through and all. That yeah, stuff. yeah. <laughs> all things considered, it wasn't all that uh, bad. It was no, it wasn't. Um, I think that I wish they had put in some of the stuff that Richard was talking oh, about yeah. that they cut out. But whatever, you know. Anyway, we're on, we're talking about Dishonored Two, not Dark Souls Two. <laughs> and so, and so once you do all those things, the mission's over, pretty much. <laughs> Um, now, interestingly, there's not a lot of evidence outside the game to indicate whether the canon is you killed the Duke or just had him shipped off to the mental institution and put the double in his place. What little there is seems to indicate that you went with the non-lethal resolution, though. Um, and there, like in Death of the Outsider, you find a newspaper article talking about how the Duke attended some event. And well, if people think that Duke, the, the Duke of Bell is still alive and in power, then obviously that means you replaced him with the double. <laughs> Because it's impossible to get through this mission without either killing or deposing the Duke. So, but the trick is that the newspaper article is not dated, so it Aww. theoretically could have come out before or during the events of Dishonor Two. But you know, who leaves newspaper articles lying around for years and years? You know, because Death of the Outsider takes place quite a while after Dishonor Two. So you know, it, it tends to point in the direction of the non-lethal resolution, but it's not conclusive. An another piece of evidence you find in Death of the Outsider is a, is a silver graph, basically a, a picture, a black and white picture, <laughs> depicting the Duke uh, shaking hands with a famous musician of the time. Yeah. Um, and in the picture, the Duke is smoking a cigar. And we know that the real Duke doesn't smoke, but the double does. Uh-huh. So, so, so unless the Duke took up smoking, that tends to indicate that we went with the non-lethal resolution and replaced the Duke with his body double. You know, so if, for those reasons, and because these games usually, the canon usually goes with the non-lethal resolution, I think that the canon is that we replaced the Duke with his double and didn't kill him. Um, so that, that's my thoughts on it. But, you know, like Miyazaki says, it's open to interpretation, I guess. Miyazaki never said that. Oh, yeah? I'm joking. I have no idea. <laughs> Or like he like he would say in an interview if you ask him about a point of lore. Yeah, if you're like, "Hey, did Ludwig kill Maria?" He'd be like, "Laughs." That's up to interpretation. <laughs> That's one way to look at it. Yeah. yeah. And then internally, he'd be like, "My fans are so dumb." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So, but yeah, that's the mission. Um, that was the penultimate mission. We have one more to go. <laughs> We're there. Yes. We're there at the end, and and this one's pretty straightforward on the whole. 
Um, it's called Death to the Empress, and as the title implies, you're, you're, really your only objective is to eliminate Delilah one way or another. And of course, there's a le- you can kill her, or there's a non-lethal way to do it. And it, it kind of parallels the options that you have to deal with her in the DLC of the first game, uh, Bring More Witches. Uh, but we'll kind of get to that. Uh, when you first start the mission, you're on the you're on the dreadful whale for the last time. And the way that Megan interacts with you will differ depending on whether it's low chaos or high chaos. Um, on low chaos, she will trust you enough to reveal to you outright that she is, in fact, Billy Lurk, former assassin for Dowd, who participated in the assassination of Empress Jessamy. Basically, because you're playing on low chaos and you're not killing many people, she feels like she might be safe to reveal this to you, you know? Yeah. Maybe you won't kill her on sight. But if it's on high chaos, then she's understandably scared that you'll kill her. (laughs) She's like, you know that Billy Lurk? Oh, I hate her too. Bye. Good luck. (laughs) (laughs) She's afraid that you'll kill her on the spot. Yeah. Because if you're playing on high chaos, then by this point, you've killed literally hundreds of people. Yeah, you're literally (laughs) insane. (laughs) Yeah. So... She's not going to volunteer that to you because whether whether you're Emily or Corvo, that'll give you a prime reason to kill her. You know. Yeah. <laughs> so on high chaos, she doesn't tell you about it, but you but you find clues in the ship that reveal it to you. Basically, on high chaos, if you can pickpocket her and get the key to her cabin and go inside her cabin, it it's clear as day that she is Billy Lurk. You find like some souvenirs, like her the old mask she used to wear when she was a member of the Whalers, which was Dowd's group of assassins. And you find an audiograph where Dowd basically recites the same dialogue he recites at the end of Brigmore Witches after you've defeated Delilah. At least in low chaos. You know, I, I killed an empress and saved her daughter. I made my choices, now I'm ready for whatever comes, you know. Uh-huh. So it's like, oh, this is Billy Lurk. Yeah. I could not have picked up on that until now, game. Thank you very much. <laughs> And then Megan herself will disappear. Um, and from what you find in her in her cabin, she's basically gone out to look for Dowd. Because she misses Dowd, and she somehow thinks that it's okay to go looking for him, even though she betrayed him and tried to have him killed. In yeah, the first but you know, years. water under the bridge. Yeah, it's all water under the bridge. <laughs> you know, Even though she betrayed him to Delilah. Yeah. <laughs> in the first DLC. <laughs> oh, yeah. Tried to help Delilah kill him. Uh, yeah. But you know. Those things are overlooked, I guess, in these games. Uh, <laughs> so that's the end of Megan Foster in this game. Yeah, she disappears. And then, so Sokolov is the one to take you on the skiff over to your last mission. Um, and maybe in prior missions, too, after you, after you rescue him, he starts to operate the skiff in place of Megan. Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. And so, you, so before the mission to go get rid of Delilah, you confer, you confer with your allies. And if you stopped... Stilton from going insane, he'll be there. And he'll help you make preparations to go back to Dunwall. So at this point, you, you take, once you confer with your allies, um, you, t- you go back to Dunwall, and now it's two months after the coup. And you find that everyone is living in peace and prosperity, business is thriving, commerce is booming, everyone has enough to eat, and all is well. So it's a uh, good thing you left. It is. And, and actually, I, I'm. and if you'll believe that, if you believe that, I have a bridge I'd like to sell you. Uh, <laughs> now everything's gone to crap. Yeah. Uh, and um, it's like there have been food riots. Businesses are shuttered. People have fled the city. Um, the city watch isn't getting paid. And so they are stealing and oppressing the people for whatever they can find. And so it's all gone to crap. 
And so you get back to Dunwall and find the place in shambles. And when you get there, if you if you remember from the first game, it basically looks like it does in the first game. You can re- you go to the same areas, the same building. Um, it really took me back to the first game when we came back to Dunwall for the final mission. Uh, of course, it looks it looks better because it's you know it's got the new code and it's in HD and everything. Yeah, but, <laughs> you know it's still the same place, only it's once again gone to crap. So Delilah has not taken much interest in governing. Um, Except to, you know, put down people who get on her bad side and that sort of thing. Um, there's a lot of distrust of Delilah because these strange women accompany her everywhere she goes, and they engage in strange rituals and do strange things because they're all witches. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, that could be it. Yeah. <laughs> and so the the overseers have come to conclude that our new empress Delilah practices witchcraft, <laughs> and so they organized this. Big, massive assault on Dunwall Tower, which comes to naught. The overseers are soundly defeated. And once you get into the tower, you see their corpses strung up everywhere. Uh, because they, the assault was a miserable failure. Um, but, you know, before you see that, you have to make your way through the streets to get to Dunwall Tower. And there are multiple ways to do that. Um, on the streets, you don't learn too much about Delilah's ritual, what her plans are how to sabotage the ritual that she's planning. Because she is planning a ritual, like she always does. Yeah. She's <laughs> always up thing. to something. <laughs> yep, that's her thing. Um, but you do come across this black market shop where you can buy stuff, and you know. And you can go into the premise, and you, in, in, in Dunwall, the Hatters have really started to take over the streets. Not to be confused with the Howlers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> These are the Hatters. Mm-hmm. A, a different criminal gang in Dunwall. They've started to kind of take over things. Uh, because there's been there's been kind of a collapse of law and order because you know the city watch isn't getting paid they're not getting fed so they're just kind of out for themselves you know so you don't really see too many of them uh so yeah collapse of law and order that the howlers are taking over and delilah doesn't care because she's planning something much bigger like it turns out becoming empress was not her ultimate end game it was something much bigger than that um she wants to reshape the whole world with her paintings uh, in the DLC, she wanted to – basically her plan was to paint a portrait of Emily and perform this ritual that would project her into the painting and into Emily's body. And she would possess Emily's body and rule the empire through Emily, the rightful heir to the throne. That was her first plan. Dowd, of course, thwarted that plan. But now that Delilah has come back from the void, she's much more powerful and much more insightful. It's at the point where you find this one note that says that Delilah – actually has learned that the ocean has a language and the waves talk to each other and coordinate their movements. And so she says, if I can learn to talk to the ocean, I'll have a powerful ally. Like she could come to control the oceans if she can learn to talk to the ocean. So this is the extent of her knowledge and perceptions that she's acquired all those years she's spent in the void, you know? Yeah, she's spent too much time talking to Aldrich. <laughs> She's like, the deep this, the deep that. And now she thinks she can talk to the ocean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We should have Aldrich on. Always oh, have someone impersonate Aldrich and yeah. talk to him. I wonder who that could be. Maybe we'll ask Gail to do it. Oh, that was a good one. That was a good one. <laughs> I think I was laughing the whole time. That was hilarious. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So what you come to learn is that Delilah's once again going to use her paintings to perform a ritual. Only this one's a bit different from the one she tried to perform before. And in this one, she's going to paint a world. And she's <gasps> going to use... What's up? Oh, my God. 
Paint a world. Arian Dale. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Ariamas. <laughs> Arian Dale. Yeah, we need a uh, we need a crossover episode for sure now. That's right. We need to have Delilah and Aldrich on to, <laughs> to explain to us what's going on. That's right. <laughs> Find someone to be Delilah and Aldrich. <laughs> Boy, wouldn't, wouldn't that be a conversation? Yeah. <laughs> Holy cow. Richie will play both of them at the same time. I'm sure he'll do a great job. <laughs> but yeah, so she's going to paint a world. And the title of the painting is The World As It Should Be. And if she performs the ritual properly, then the world that is in the painting will become. The real world. So she'll effectively recreate the whole world through her painting. And so see, she wants to be God in her own world. And she'll do that by switching the real world with the world in her painting. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, the game hints at this. You find these little notes that say that the outsider tells you that though Delilah is Empress, she's after a much greater prize. And you're like, well, what could that be? She's Empress. Um, and then you find these little notes indicating that Delilah's ambition is basically limitless. She wants the world and the seas around it and the stars above it. Yeah. You know? she w- I want the world. I want the whole world. I don't care how I want it now. <laughs> <laughs> From Willy Wonka. <laughs> That's Delilah, pretty much. Yeah. You literally turned her into a Disney princess. That's right. See, she she finally gets to be a princess. Yeah. <laughs> Just like she always wanted, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, so that's her plan. Um, and so the non-lethal solution is to sabotage the ritual. Surprise, surprise. Um, an integral part of the ritual is, on her imperial throne, she's got four runes. Two runes are very pure, and they look like the runes that we collect, pretty much. Except maybe a little cleaner. Uh-huh. And two are something new. They're called corrupt runes. Like you've been finding corrupt bone charms all over the place, but you've never found corrupt runes yet. Well, Delilah's figured out how to how to make corrupt runes. And so integral to the ritual is we have to have two corrupt runes on one side and two pure runes on another side to maintain that perfect balance of energy, right? And so Delilah writes in her notes, if the balance should be thrown off, Say, if we put an extra corrupt rune on the throne, why, the ritual could backfire on me. And she writes this down. Yeah, (laughs) as usual. (laughs) And we find it. It's like, oh, Delilah, your writings have been your undoing once again. So if you you can sabotage, but I'm kind of getting ahead of myself a little bit because we haven't got to the part where she actually goes into the painting and takes you with her or anything like that. Yeah. Once you get to Dunwall Tower, basically there's an elevator that goes up to the throne room where Delilah is. And so you have to go through this long process of exploring your way through Dunwall Tower and eventually restore power to the elevator and get up to the throne room. Now, there may be other ways to get up there, but that's the most, that's the most straightforward way to get to the throne room. Um, and this is where you find all the, little, all the little notes and things that tell you how to sabotage the ritual. And basically, you have, to, you have to get all the ingredients you need to make a corrupt rune, one extra corrupt rune to put on the throne, and that will reverse the ritual and sabotage it, turn it against Delilah. Um, so you can do that or not. Um, and once you get to the throne room, Delilah will be there sitting on her throne, and she won't immediately be aware of you. And if you just walk up in there and reveal yourself, she'll turn hostile and fight you, and she'll summon clones of herself to fight you, and basically the final battle will commence right then and there. And you'll almost have to kill her because you haven't been able to sneak up to her throne and put the, put the corrupt rune on it yet, you know, to sabotage the ritual. Um, but if you sneak in there, and you point the heart at her and put her spirit back into her body. At that point, she'll be mortal. And if you haven't done that yet and you provoke her, then you won't be able to kill her. Yeah. And she'll kill you. Yeah. You know, because she <laughs> yeah. won't be mortal yet. Yeah. 
So you can stealthily sneak into her throne room, put her spirit back into her body. And then if you don't provoke her, then at some point she will rise up from her throne. And she may know you're there and she'll say, come with me and see the world as it should be. And she'll actually go inside her painting. Mm -hmm. And at that point, she's gone. And you don't have to follow her in there immediately. This is your opportunity to put the extra corrupt rune on her throne if you want the non-lethal solution. When she leaves to go inside her painting. And so you've put her spirit back into her body. She goes inside the painting. And at that point, you're alone in the throne room. Um, So if you want the non-lethal solution, you have to put the corrupt rune that you've made on the throne before you follow her into the painting. But once you do that, or don't do it, you can follow her into the painting. And once you're inside the painting, um, there'll be replicas of her all over the place. And if you're careful, if you're careful, you can take those out before you alert her, if you're stealthy. Uh, I'm not that stealthy. I I managed to take out two, I think, before she turned hostile. Uh, But if you don't take them out, and she sees you, she'll turn hostile. And then all of her clones will attack you. Just like in the DLC. And, you'll have, and then once you defeat those, uh, she won't you know, just collapse and become helpless like she did in the DLC. She'll actually keep fighting you. And at this point, she'll start, she'll start shooting this... Uh, it's almost like in, in Dark Souls, you, know, you can make this wave of darkness sort of undulate along the ground and attack your foe. It's kind of how it looks in Dishonored. Delilah has this special new attack where she'll make this sort of wave of energy follow along the ground. And if it hits you, you will turn to stone. And it's game over. So you have to incapacitate Delilah pretty quick after you take care of her replicas. Because that's when she starts using the stone attack. Um, And if you wait too long, or if it has to hit you, you'll get turned to stone. So you have to act quickly. Uh, Because it's kind of tough to avoid, (laughs) you know, with the mechanics of the game. Yeah, it's coming straight at you, you know. <laughs> Unless you like blink out or something, it's kind of hard to avoid just by running. So, anyway, if you kill Delilah, then she's dead, and it's mission accomplished. Uh, but if you incapacitate her, then you can get the non-lethal solution. What you do is you'll bring her back out into the real world, and she'll lay unconscious, and you'll hide in a corner. And after a while, she'll wake up, and then she won't realize that you've put the extra corrupt rune on her throne, and so she'll perform the ritual. And as a consequence of this. If you've sabotaged it, then she will be she will be trapped inside the painting forever, and she'll rule over like an imaginary world, thinking she's thinking she's actually accomplished her objective and switched the real world with the world in the painting. So instead of bringing the painting out into the real world, she'll put herself into the painting and be trapped there forever. Well, in theory, forever, but with her, who knows? Yeah, it's <laughs> true. And so. I think that's the canon ending. If you read the comic, The Pierce and the Prince, it talks about how Emily trapped Delilah in the painting so that for for all eternity, she's ruling over an imaginary world. Aw, good for her, though. Inside the painting. So she kind of gets what she wants, but at the same time, she's out of our hair. You know? And she's trapped inside the painting. So either you'll kill her, or you'll trap her inside the painting. Yeah. And then uh, there's one last choice you can make after this. Once you kill her in... Once you kill or incapacitate Delilah, you'll see your throne. And you end the game by assuming your throne. Um, if you're Emily. Or if you're Corvo, you end the game by assuming Emily's throne or interacting with it. And you, you can choose to turn the other, to, you know, depetrify the other character and turn them back to normal. Yeah. Or you could choose to leave them that way. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, if you're Corvo, you can choose to bring Emily back or you can choose to leave her as a statue. Yeah. And 
If you're Emily, same thing. You can choose to bring Corvo back or just leave him as a statue. <laughs> of course, of course, the canon is that Emily brings Corvo back. Yeah. But and if you're Corvo, if you choose to leave Emily as a statue, then you'll take the throne yourself. Right. And become the emperor. <laughs> so there's all sorts of things you can do. So that's the last choice you have to make at the end of the game is basically whether to unpetrify the other character or not. Yeah. And then, you know, you end the game and then the outsider sort of explains what happens after that and you finish the game. Wow, good job, Nick. I hope all that made sense, man. <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. Well, well, well done. That, that was our beefiest Dishonored podcast yet, I think. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> it was uh, three and a half hours, basically. Holy cow. I imagine you'll have to do some editing, but... No, no. We're just going to let it play. Yeah. <laughs> Kidding, yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, that was, that was wild. Uh, this game has a lot to it. Well, really excellent job, Nick. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, thank you for having me, boss. Of course, anytime you want to do this, just holler at me and yeah. I'll be available. You know. Yeah, and tell us again about your complicated YouTube channel. <laughs> oh, yeah. it's uh, The link is like, youtube.com slash lowercase c slash cinderthief, one word, and the C and the T are capitalized. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's the custom URL that they gave me. <laughs> yeah, maybe YouTube is like, listen, since you're a lawyer... Anybody who accesses your channel has to be at least somewhat intelligent to be able to remember all of this complicated stuff. That's right, so we're going to make it as complicated as we can. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it is better, though, than the random string of numbers oh, and yeah. words <laughs> that it used to be. But uh, Yeah. Yeah, you know, we have, you know, boss fights and streams and run-throughs and stuff, so... Yeah, it's really awesome. Everyone should check it out. Thank you, boss. I appreciate it. Okay. Uh, well, I guess that's it. You, you're free to go. You may enjoy your day. I'm gonna go grocery shopping. Take care. You enjoy yours too. Have fun shopping and tell Corvo I said hi. Yeah, I will. <laughs> All right. Bye bye, man. All right. Bye bye. Have a great weekend. <laughs>